My name is Jeff Adachi. I serve as the public defender in San Francisco. My office provides legal representation to about 20,000 people every year who are accused of crimes. It is our mission and goal to ensure that we provide the very best legal representation possible. We started the Justice Summit nine years ago to create a forum to increase consciousness and awareness of issues that affect public safety and criminal and juvenile justice reform. I'm very proud to say that this is our ninth summit. Over the years, we've taken on issues like closing the California Youth Authority, which by the way is happening this year, reducing the confinement of minority and poor children in the Juvenile Justice Center, formulating community-based collaborations like the MAGIC programs in the Western Edition in Bayview Hunters Point, prisoner reentry programs, and abolishing the death penalty, just to name a few. This year we take on three critical issues. Our first panel will feature a riveting discussion about gangs and reducing gang violence. On our panel will be former gang members, gang intervention workers, victims' rights advocates, police, public defenders, prosecutors, and researchers. We're going to talk about strategies to reduce gang violence. Our keynote speaker, Professor Georgia Leap, who I'll introduce in just a few minutes, will kick off our discussion. Our second panel features a cutting-edge discussion about neuroscience and what we've learned about the relationship between the human brain and criminal behavior. We have top experts who have come in from all parts of the country to talk about what the brain research shows and that is the key to understanding how human beings behave and why they might be predisposed to commit acts of violence. Our third panel, this afternoon's panel, will feature a debate about a proposed law which would reduce felony drug possession crimes to a misdemeanor. This is something that 13 states have done as well as the federal government. Today, we not only bring these issues to the forefront, but also give you an opportunity to participate in the dialogue. You have cards that you can fill out to ask questions, and we encourage you to do so. This year promises to be a year of reform and change like we've never seen. With state realignment underway, we are now seeing prisoner reentry programs being implemented throughout the state. It's a good start, but we're still spending too much money and resources on incarcerating and not enough on rehabilitation and reentry. This November, voters will decide on limiting the three strikes law and abolishing the death penalty, issues and measures which are long overdue. It's clear that there's much, much more, however, that needs to be done. According to a study that was published just this month by two major universities, since 1989, 2,000 people have been wrongfully convicted and incarcerated for serious crimes. Collectively, these individuals served over 10,000 years, an average of 11 years per person. I would like to thank all the people who made the summit possible. Larry Roberts, uh, Tamara Apperton, uh, Armando Miranda, Angela Al Young, Kathy Asada, Amy Bevan, Lexi Prey, 
and the many volunteers and, of course, all of our speakers and panelists. I'd also like to thank our uh, co-sponsors, the law firm of Cooper, White & Cooper, and the Bar Association of San Francisco. I'd also like to thank uh, Julie Tron and Stephen Kaus uh, for their help and support. It's now my pleasure uh, to introduce uh, Chris Carney, who is the president-elect of the Bar Association of San Francisco. And we've had a long, uh, fruitful relationship with the Bar Association of San Francisco. They provide conflicts attorneys who handle cases for indigent clients when the public defender is not available due to a conflict of interest. Chris? As Jeff said in that kind introduction, I'm the managing partner at Keckram Van Nest, and I'm the president-elect of the Bar Association of San Francisco. And we're very proud to co-sponsor this year's Public Defender Justice Summit. On behalf of our approximately 8,000 members, we applaud all of those who devote their careers to the defense of the indigent. We are very fortunate in San Francisco to have the Public Defender's Office with Jeff Adachi's leadership, which provides top-notch legal representation to, as Jeff said, approximately 20,000 San Franciscans who are uh, charged each year and who are indigent. A core part of our Bar Association's mission is providing uh, equal access to justice, a mission that is vehemently and passionately shared by Jeff Adashi's office and by all of the public defenders. We are also very, very proud of the conflicts panel that Jeff described through the Bar Association, who are also providers of top-notch representation to indigents in matters that the uh, Jeff Adachi's office can't handle. And to those of you who are here today, we applaud you for what you do. And for those of you who couldn't make it, we thank you very much. As is often, if not always the case, this year's Public Defender Summit will be a very, very interesting day uh, full of cutting edge issues. The um, gang violence, brain, uh, brain science and crime, and the potential for decriminalizing certain drug offenses are issues that are at the forefront and are issues that deserve all of our attention. It promises to be a great series of panels. And once again, on behalf of the Bar Association, we're very proud to sponsor this year. Put up with me because I like to sort of wander around. I like to see your faces. You've already learned more about me than a lot of people know, and it's absolutely positively true. For the past 10 years, I have been married to someone who was, for the first five years of our marriage, a deputy chief with the LAPD. I now refer to him as being in recovery. Um, <laughs> at the same time, I have been working extensively with Homeboy Industries, as Jeff just spoke about. And my brother said, if I could ever have dreamt my sister would be married to a cop and working with a priest, I would have just said, someone is lying. So. I have worked with gangs, been involved with gangs, tried to figure out about gangs for 34 years. I began as a young social worker in South Los Angeles in some of the most gang-infested housing projects that are now almost mythic. Jordan Downs, Nickerson Gardens, Imperial Courts. And I worked in these projects during what is now referred to as the decade of death, when crack and unregulated gun availability laid waste to communities of color. In Los Angeles during the late 1980s and early 1990s, 
there were 1,000 plus homicides a year in the city of Los Angeles, not the county, the city. Nowadays, we are hovering somewhere between 200 and 300 homicides a year. And people talk about the gang problem having been addressed. Yes and no. And I want to share with you what I have experienced, what I have learned, but I've got to give you a proviso. I am not a typical academic. I am not going to sit here and quote statistics to you or talk to you about theory. I am going to talk with you about practicalities. I am going to talk to you about pragmatic approaches, and I am going to talk about reality. Because San Francisco, just like Los Angeles learned, will never, ever solve or deal with its gang problem effectively unless there is true collaboration. And I'm going to talk to you about what that looks like and what that feels like and what that means. And I'm going to speak to you about the lessons that have been learned as law enforcement had to come off its high perch, and I don't know if that's true in San Francisco, but in Los Angeles, law enforcement learned to its great fortune that collaboration truly is the answer. And I'm going to talk with you about some of the lessons learned. First and foremost, I can tell you that the people we have learned lessons from have been gang members themselves. My research is engaged with talking with both current active gang members and former gang members. I work to collect their life histories. We have now collected over 300 life histories, and still the stories do not talk. They do not stop. What do we learn about people in gangs? I recall early on when I was sitting down with someone whose gang name was Smiley. His real name was Erwin Panamero. He is written about in my book. And Smiley was a young man of 19 when I first sat down with him at Homeboy Industries. And one of the things he said to me plaintively was, why was no one there for me? Why did no one speak to me? Why did no one try to stop me? Smiley was arrested when he was 16 years old. His big homie told him to lie about his age and say he was 18 because they could be together in jail. And from there, his story unfolded. There were different social interventions, different things were done with him, and ultimately, Smiley was helped. But his words haunted me. Why did no one speak to me? Why did no one try to stop me? And I began to listen to the stories of gang members and former gang members, and my research team at UCLA discovered some startling truths. Gang members do leave the gang, and they leave the gang for a variety of reasons. They all have a turning point when they decide to leave that changes them. The turning point would be something 
any of you would logically imagine. For female gang members, and by the way, we didn't see many of them on that video, but they are out there. And they are not baby mamas. They are active gang members. For female gang members, the turning point most often came with the birth of a child. For male gang members, the picture is much more complex. It might be, surprisingly, because I'm not a big fan of the law, it might be because they got their second strike and they're frightened of getting the third. It might be because of the birth of a child, usually a son. Somehow, the gang world has not quite caught up with post-feminist theory. <laughs> or it might be like the story a gang member named Maniac told me when he decided to leave the rolling 60s after 20 years and after achieving shock collar status. He was in the back seat of a car being driven by one of his underlings in the front seat. And one of his fellow gang associates got in the back seat with him. And the associate said, move over. And Maniac didn't want to move over. The associate said, move over. Maniac didn't want to move over. The associate shoved him over, and about 10 seconds later, a gun, a gun was shot, a bullet came through the back of the car, pierced the associate through the neck, and killed him instantly. And Maniac said, had the guy not shoved me aside, I would be dead. I'm done. That was his turning point. Now, call it a turning point, call it a teachable moment, use whatever terminology you want. That is the point we need to be present. And when I say we, I mean we. At that moment, at that turning point, at that moment of truth, at that teachable moment, it is imperative that resources be brought to bear. Now, what are the two most impressive resources that are brought to bear at that moment? There are two major forces that help gang members change. One is tattoo removal. Tattoo removal is the first major force. It is the denunciation of an identity. The second is legal assistance and legal expungements. Surprising. You didn't see it on the video. I never thought of it. The first thing individuals need not to feel like gang members is to erase their past. They erase it literally. They've talked with me about feeling like it was a baptism. Removing their tattoos, legal expungements. But it's not that simple. Changing from being a gang member to a former gang member involves a change in identity. And that's a tricky, tricky process. It is slow, it is steady, 
It is fraught with frustration. The gang is most commonly replaced with drugs. There are also fallbacks, relapses, connections with homies. There are struggles. And this is where collaboration needs to take hold. It has now become a cliche to say we cannot arrest our way out of this problem. I am tired of those words. I no longer want to hear those words. And that is not to give law enforcement short shrift. I can tell you categorically I have had an impact on my husband's life, some of it unwanted, and yet he has had an impact on mine. And I have done extensive work with law enforcement, both with the LAPD and with the Los Angeles County Sheriff. And I am here to tell you that crime has been driven down in Los Angeles because of their efforts but not only because of their efforts. So what does the collaboration look like? I want you to keep some ideas in mind. First of all, there is no first among equals. What we learned in Los Angeles was suppression alone was absolutely not the answer. It didn't work. There were record highs in gang violence in 2005. You saw that in the video. I want to tell you what's happened between 2005 and 2012. Number one, the grassroots, the disorganized, fragmented, passionate grassroots must be part of the effort. The community members who go to county supervisors meetings, the community members who pass out flyers, the youth who have been in the juvenile justice system that are now part of youth justice coalitions, those individuals must have a seat at the table, number one. Number two, community-based organizations that operate on a shoestring and often without any kind of coverage anywhere at all, must be legitimized and made part of the conversation. I have witnessed this with Homeboy Industries. How many people in the audience have heard of Homeboy Industries? Okay. In California, I rarely have to worry. Some, I speak cross-country, and sometimes I'll get to a state like I was in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I started to talk about Father Greg Boyle, and no one had any idea what I was talking about. Now, I've known Greg Boyle for 25 years. I worked with him when he routinely received calls with death threats because people believed he was trying to help gang members. The LAPD used to call him a thug hugger, and that was the lightest name they called him. I'm not going to repeat everything they have said, not because I'm afraid of using profanity, but because it was a different LAPD. He was seen, it was rumored that the Mexican mafia 
was allowed to meet in his church. It was rumored that he held guns for gang members. It was rumored that he was helping gang members cross the border and evade arrest. I'm sure he knew where the body of Jimmy Hoffa was buried by the time you got done listening to the rumors. Nowadays, the LAPD views Homeboy Industries as integral to its anti-gang efforts. Not all of them, not 9,000 members, but I can tell you this. When Homeboy Industries had its annual benefit to honor people in the community as well as former gang members, the person they honored was Chief Charlie Beck, the chief of the LAPD. Unless you think that was an anomaly, the year before, they honored Sheriff Lee Baca. There is an alliance between community-based organizations and law enforcement. That's not enough. There has also been, in the streets, ongoing, a relationship, a tricky one, a delicate one, a thoughtful one between the Los Angeles Police Department and gang intervention. Why is it tricky? Because interventionists are former gang members and they have to be very careful about how they play out their relationship. They do not want to be known as snitches and yet they want to stop the bleeding. I cannot tell you the complete shock I have felt as I have sat down with veteran members of the LAPD staff and they have talked about the important work of gang interventionists. This is not lip service, this is reality. And then I bring us to the most important part of collaboration. It has to do with helping young people, whether they are at risk of joining gangs or they want to leave gangs, either one, they need help building their identities. They need help with seeing an alternative to gang life. They need someone who is interested in them. I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'm going to talk about who those people are. When I was a sweet young thing and a social worker in Nickerson Gardens, I had that one kid. Every single public defender, every gang interventionist, every prosecutor, every person in this room knows about that one kid. All of us have that kid. They touch us. They touch us for reasons we cannot articulate. I don't know why Bobby touched me. His name was Little Devil, but I never wanted to call him by that name, although when I think about my personality, that may in fact be the exact reason why he touched me. But he affected me. He was 14 years old. He had been abused he was in foster placement with his aunt in Nickerson Gardens. And I had to go visit him. And I fell in love with him. 
in the most proper, loving, maternal, big sister way. I loved him. And I would say to him, with all the zealotry and ignorance of a young social worker, I'll always be here for you. Always. I'll always be here for you. Now, it was a Friday night. I had gone on what was one in a string of many disastrous dates. This is back in the 1980s when people still dated. We did not yet hook up. <laughs> or we did, but we didn't say we hooked up. And it was about 2 in the morning, and I was getting home. And I lived in an old wood frame house in Venice, California. I'm sure everybody here has heard of Venice. It was a funky house. The rent was affordable, but it was 2 in the morning. And the house had a wraparound porch. And I was walking up to my house. There was no garage, parked on the street, walked up to the house, and there was a shadowy figure on the porch. So I did what any God-fearing young woman did in the 80s. I unzipped my purse, reached for my can of mace. Yes, I had taken the training. I was prepared, and I looked at the shadowy figure, and he said, Georgia. And I heard the voice, and I knew it was Bobby. And I, with all the sensitivity of a newly minted social worker, said, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> and he spilled out a story that his foster uncle, his uncle, worked at Martin Luther King Hospital, where I was a social worker. He managed to convince his uncle to break into my personnel file. No computers there, only hard copies. He got my personnel file. He got my address. There's no public transportation in Los Angeles. Not now, not then. There's no BART, no nothing. He took three buses and hitchhiked and made it to my old frame house in Venice. And I said, why are you here? And he said, I was in a car. We did a drive-by. I don't know what to do. You said you would always be there for me. Now there's the answer, and there's the question. How are we always going to be there for Bobby? How are we going to help young people at risk or young people who are active build new identities? We begin with tattoo removal. We begin with legal expungements, and we work on attachment. Every individual who wants to avoid being in a gang, who wants to leave a gang, needs a role model, needs a mentor, needs someone to kick their ass, needs someone to be there. And let me tell you, there is no one type of person. We need the merging of former gang members, of prosecutors, of social workers, of public defenders. 
You have all had that kid. That kid needs role models, they need job training, and they need real jobs. Yes, I was heartened to hear that in the video. Nothing stops a bullet like a job. And we need to provide them. Bobby did not ask for his fate. Smiley did not ask for his fate. Young woman I work with, Dark Eyes, who has five children and has been a member of Florencia 13 and finally, finally wants to leave the gang. She did not ask for her fate. We need to be there for them. We need to listen to what their needs are. We need to provide them with jobs. And dear God, law enforcement and the community and the grassroots need to merge. You cannot meet. You need to collaborate. You cannot just speak to one another. You need to talk together. That is our challenge. And I want to urge everyone in the audience, just like myself, I take strength from those words, from that question, as Bobby threw down the gauntlet to me 30 years ago. You said you would always be there for me. We need to be there in force, together, with understanding. Thank you so much. So let me begin our discussion with German. You work every day with gang members. You were once a gang member yourself. Why do you think, given your background, that you're effective working with young people? And what does this work mean to you? And how do we know that it's working? Well, first of all, I just want to thank God for his grace, because I never thought I'd see myself out here. And uh, yeah, I do work with uh, gang members. Uh, I work with United Players. I do reentry. I work with youth that are involved in uh, juvenile justice. And majority of the kids that I work with, they are gang members. And uh, I was formerly a gang member. I grew up in San Francisco. And uh, we all have different stories. Guys that are involved in the gang, Everybody has a different story, different background, why they joined the gang. And I say, you know, my, my thing is, I believe it worked for me to be working with kids that are involved in gangs because I experienced it. I worked with the best of the best while I was incarcerated. I worked with all the shot callers in there and be able to pick their brains apart and see because I had a goal while I was in there. It took me 10 years before I started I started to transform my life. And, but in the meantime, I had a goal that I wanted to be out here. I wanted to be given an opportunity. I was doing a life sentence. In 1979, of course, I was involved in a, guy, in a gang and caught a murder case. And San Francisco was sentenced 15 years to life with two years enhancement for the gun. And uh, I came in 1979. I got out in 2007. I've been out for almost five years. And it was always in my heart that I know that I found a solution while I was incarcerated. 
to be able to be effective with these youth that I work with. And there's different stories, like I say. You know, some of the kids join the gangs because they want to fit into something. Some, they don't have no family. The father, the mother working, there's nobody there for them. And guess what? They begin to hang out. And for a lot of kids, there's a lot of idle time. And it's innocently. It ain't like, I'm going to join the gang, I'm going to be bad, I'm going to shoot you. You know, you grow up that way, hanging out and just chilling. And next thing you know, you know, you know you're cutting school, you're doing certain, and it escalates. And that's how it begins. That's how it began with me. But working with different kids that we have, now, the game's still the same. What I'm saying, gang's still the same. But the players have changed. The people that are involved in gangs have changed. And I noticed this. And I, 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 I kind of look back and I say, some of these kids are are savage. You know, I can look in their eyes, I mean, and I can just see these kids have done some way out stuff in their lives. And but the thing is, what works for me is to get their trust, knowing where I come from and understand them. I don't tell them, you know, drugs is bad, this is bad, this is bad, just to be able to listen to them and come back where it began. Because where it began, if you can figure that out, you can solve it. And I have to go way back. Why did I join a gang? Why was I so intrigued with the stuff and the power? I think what's, what's attracted me after a while, first it was just, just chilling and kicking it. And later on, it was the power that came with it. There was no money involved. There was no, nothing involved. It ain't even about the drugs. But we all, like the kids that I work with, have different different stories and we have to adjust when we're working with these kids we have to be able to find out we have to get the we have to be able to get the parents involved some of the parents migrated here as for my my example my mom couldn't speak english so we came to america and guess what i run circles around them because they couldn't speak english the teachers couldn't they couldn't relate to them and so what i did is just said any kind of story. But we need to get the parents involved in what's going on with the kids, especially when they're young. And I say that because I experienced it. And uh, my proof that it works, it doesn't work just like that. Because I talk to a kid, I speak with the kids, you know, I got to share that love with them. I got to share interest with them. And I work with a couple of uh, gang members. I worked with in the high school. I was, they were referred to me, but they never knew they were gang members, but I knew they were gang members. Now the gang members is, 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 is blocks. You know, I said, man, things have changed here. You know, you guys isolate yourself. Like with the gang member, they isolate themselves. They make their, their freedom, I mean, you know, their, their, their radius so small that they can't even go nowhere. They just go to school, come back. And, but the thing with me, with the, kid, with, with, with the youth that I work with is, is just be able to love them, be able to take interest in them and listen to them. And that's all it takes. It doesn't take a miracle. It doesn't take you yelling at, the, at, at somebody, just communicating. And sometimes all they need is information, you know, information. I share my life story with them. And I tell them, it's like going through the maze. And so, sometimes you go through these maze and there's a dead end street, right? 
And so I'm just coming back from the maze. And I'm giving them information. You know what? That's not the way to go. Because right there is a dead end street. There's nothing there. There's no trophy for you. There's no certificate for you. And even if you represent your block, there's no statue for you that they put up there because you were the gangster of the year. <laughs> so, and, and I know it works. I, I know. But not, I mean, it doesn't work for everybody. But if I can just say one, I know I saved a lot. I saved the community a lot of, a lot of heartache. Can you imagine just saving one youth and the crime that he would commit throughout those times? If it's just one, it's worth it for me. Commander Beal, we hear a lot of discussion about the role of gang interventionists and violence interrupters. How should San Francisco Police Department's gang task force work with these programs, in your opinion, in your experience? Okay, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I became the commander of investigations a year ago. And before that, uh, I had worked in many different investigative units. I'd never worked in a gang task force. So it was new to me. And what I saw and what those men and women do, I, I thought was nothing, more, nothing less than amazing. You see, what, what the gang task force does is that a majority of their contacts that they have with the community and with gang members um, are really about information sharing, about talking, about getting to know the people, the families. They do a lot of work in the intervention field as well as the prevention and also the obviously the enforcement. What the gang task force uh, has to do, what the men and women that work there, they have to build those relationships, they have to build trust uh, you can't do that sitting behind a desk. You can't do that behind, uh, behind the confines of a police radio car. You have to be out. You have to talk. You have to get to know them when they're young. You have to get to know them when they're hurting. And that's what uh, really amazed me. I'll tell you, um, this past Christmas, I went into the gang task force office, and it was loaded full of Christmas toys. And, and I asked them, I said, I asked them, what is all this about? What are you guys doing? And I come to find out that they've adopted families in some of the worst housing projects in our city. And they, out of their own uh, funds that they put together, will go out and give young kids gifts and presents. That builds those bonds and builds those relationships. And what they also do is they, we also do, is we work with the CRN, the Community Response Network. Uh, that is a CBO under the guidance of the Department of Children's Youth and Their Families, and they're made up of, of former gang members, members that have been in the life. And what we need to do, what I needed to do when I first took over as, as that commander, is to build that relationship and forge that relationship. I asked them what was going on. I met with Deanna Oliva Rocha of DCYF, and I asked her, what can we do to make this better? I, what I did then was, uh, after, after our discussion, I brought in all of the district station captains to meet with the CRN personnel, the actual former gang members. I brought in our gang task force, and I told them, we have to work together. We have to get to know each other and build some trust so that when we have uh, a, an instance 
of violence, a homicide, a shooting, that we can work together to, to do the prevention piece of it to prevent any retaliation that may occur out of emotional uh, anger. And what we've decided then is also we've learned that the reason why uh, the CRN uh, is, is sort of uh, cold during the uh, at the scene of an incident, the reason why CRN do not communicate with the officers is because, um, as Mrs. Leaf said, they're in a very precarious situation. They themselves are working with the community in a much closer environment than an officer is, and they cannot be perceived as a snitch. They cannot be perceived as working for the police department, but however, they are there to calm down the emotions, to calm down the, the uh, anger. And what they do then is, for example, we have a shooting or a homicide, CRN will respond out to the hospital to be with the families, because that's where the emotions run highest. And that's where any talk of retaliation may occur. The CRNs then work with the, uh, um, our social workers at the hospital, but also with the officers at the hospital to identify where the retaliation may occur next so that we can start to take measures to saturate, to prevent, uh, and to interrupt any violence that may occur as a result of the incident that had just happened. This is a component or a piece that has really been building. It's been building over the last year. And uh, actually, before speaking here, I, uh, I polled four of the district, district station captains uh, of Mission, Bayview, Ingleside, uh, and also Northern District. And these are the four districts that are most affected by gang violence. And to the person, they all said that they appreciated what the CRN did. However, they wished that they were there more often. They needed to see them more. They needed to have more of them. And that's all comes down, and they needed to build that communication. And that all comes down to funding, obviously. It also comes down to training and, and, and trust and to, and to be able to uh, have the CRNs talk to the officers. So what we did was I built in uh, a program where CRNs would go out to the stations and address the officers at lineup, the actual officers in uniform. And for many of them, that was hard, and for the officers, because they had arrested some of the, these individuals when they, were, when they were actually younger. But now the officers had to learn what the CRN's role was and how their role can actually help us and help the police department, help the community. The other piece of this prevention is also with, and, and, I, and I, I'll, put this, I'll put our police department, the San Francisco Police Department, up against any department in this country, because I think under Chief Sir's guidance, we are the, probably the uh, a most active community-oriented policing police department uh, uh, of anyone in this country, of, of any department. I've seen, and I tell you what, Chief Sir puts his money where his mouth is. He's out there with us. He goes to the high schools, to middle schools. He talks to the kids about staying in school, staying out of the gangs, staying away from drugs. We have officers that uh, have a wilderness program, a fishing program. There's PAL. There's a number of things and, and, and um, organizations in place to, to start to make change. And I think we've seen a lot of this dividend over the past three or four years. In 2008, uh, there were 98 homicides in San Francisco. Since then, we have dropped that number almost in half. And I think we continue to see those dividends being paid as we continue to work with the community and work with the kids. So in closing, 
I just want to say that um, your gang task force, the, the men and women that work for you, uh, I know on a daily basis they do an amazing job. They're, they're part of the community policing uh, aspect of it. They're not hiding behind the scenes. They're out on the street. They're building those relationships. And we as a department will continue to build those relationships uh, as long as we stay with the plan that we have in place. Thank you. Now, Gino, you grew up in the Bay Area, and you've experienced what might be termed as gang life. How do you define the term gang? And, and do, you do you think people understand what makes a person a supposed gang member? Um, well, yes, I, I grew up in the city of Richmond, um, right across the Bay Bridge. And uh, Richmond has this uh, stigma associated with it for um, being known for, for violence. Um, Growing up in Richmond, I never looked at it as I was a part of a gang. I always thought that the term gang was something that was uh, manifested through the media and, and law enforcement for, for numbers, you know, in my opinion. Um, it was more so of a, a community. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't go to school and meet somebody, and I lived in Panola, and he was like, yeah, I'm from uh, this part of Richmond. Why don't you come to my neighborhood? And I joined where he was from. I, I lived on this block. This is where my grandmother's house was. This is where I was born and raised. And when I walk outside, what people may see on TV was right there at my front door. There was the killings. There was the dope dealing. Everything was right there. I didn't have to walk around a corner. I didn't have to go to nobody else's projects or hood. It was right there. And it was a community. It was people that I walked to school with since since kindergarten, you know, we just grew up together. It wasn't like um, there was no pamphlet handout to us. It showed us how to conduct ourselves as a gang, what to wear. Um, this is how we're going to show people who we are. It was nothing like that. Um, it could have been someone had a fight, um, a school fight, and uh, we may be at the mall and we see them, see that person we had a fight with, and it just went from there. But that's no different from the Army and the Navy having their bar fights, you know, uh, you know, so um, I didn't I didn't see it as it being a gang. It was just a community, um, a community that unified together to, to support each other, whether that was even though it may have been a negative way, but it was still support because most of us didn't have that at home. Um, I didn't grow up in a stable household and none of my peers grew up in a stable household. None of my peers know who their father are. You know, or the father is dead. Um, so most of us raised by either a single mother or our grandmother. Um, and in return, you know, the block I grew up on was a very notorious block. It was well known for violence. That was a reputation. My brother, he's four years my senior. This is who I looked up to, my older cousins. And my brother, who's serving 15 years for manslaughter currently, he had a notorious reputation. He was real big throughout the city, associated with violence, not for having the most money or anything like that, but he had a reputation for violence. And in return of that being my brother, I had to succumb to pros and cons to that, which was the pro was, you know, a lot of people would mess with me because of who my brother was, but then the con was there was people that wanted to do harm to me because of who my brother was. So his enemies became my enemies. It wasn't a choice but it was just more so, it's just how it was. I can walk to the corner store and somebody can be like, that's old little brother right there, let's get him. And it comes to the point to where you, you, know, you, you get tired of running. You don't run, you fight back. And that's just 
how it was growing up at the time. I didn't see it as being wrong. I just saw it as a way of life. Um, what I think people uh, define as a gang, um, someone now with dreadlocks, someone would just automatically adjudicate that person and say, oh, that's a gang, he must be a gang member right there. Or I have, I mean, you can't see it, but I have tattoos all on my arms, my neck and my hand. And none of my tattoos um, are gang associated or street or block or turf associated. They're all tell a personal story in my life. But someone will look at me and say that's a gang member, but someone else, it can be that person ex expressing their um, artistic side. But for me, I'm, I'm considered a gang member. So um, I just think that it, it, it comes to a point to where um, it has to be a level of understanding and, and communication from uh, our peers, um, community leaders, um, the school system, politicians, uh, everybody plays a part. Um, Eric, you've worked as a police officer in the LAPD gang unit, and now you're a prosecutor, and you're the head of the gang unit in San Francisco that prosecutes all the gang cases. How do you see the gang problem in San Francisco, and what is your goal as an assistant district attorney in prosecuting gang cases? Imagine you're 21, you're from Mississippi, you've gone through the police academy for six months, it's 1989, and you're now working in Los Angeles. And after being a patrol officer for just a few months, you're placed on the crash unit, the gang detail. And you've arrested a youth. And instead of taking him to jail, you take him to his mother. And the mother looks at you and says, can you threaten him physically? Can you make him more afraid of you than of the gang members? The academy doesn't prepare you for that. But I take that experience and I realize in the gang environment, most of these youth are coming from single family households. I also realize that in the area where the gang violence is most prevalent is great citizens of the community, San Francisco, LA, New York, 99% of those citizens are great and they're afraid and they're being terrorized by certain youths. So as a prosecutor, I take this experience and figure out how do I want to enforce gang violence, especially here in San Francisco where it's turf oriented? So I break it down into three categories. You have the individual who's not fully immersed in a gang lifestyle. He's just an associate. He's someone who's hanging out. He's the one who doesn't have all the gang tattoos. He's the individual that you see in a picture at 14 or 15 holding the assault rifle for the older gang members who are behind him. For that individual, we do try to work with community-based programs. I have met with DCYF. I have met with Alberto of Homie. I have met with the African-American Steering Committee. And in all those individuals are people who have been in this violence, and I say to them, what can we do to make sure that this is the individual who doesn't go to prison? This is an individual who doesn't have the strike on his record. This is an individual that there needs to be consequences, but prison is the right answer. So for that individual, we try to find a way to keep him out of the lifestyle, to keep him out of the prison system. However, then you have the second individual. The individual, and I was glad to hear Gino say this, it's the individual who does crimes not for economic means, but for someone who's trying to increase his status in the community, 
for someone who doesn't really care about anything but being notorious for gang violence. For that individual, we have to have certain types of remedies, and that remedies is not CBOs, that remedies to a district attorney's office is community safety. And for that individual, we have to have consequences. However, it doesn't mean that we have to enforce his prison sentence to the maximum of the law. We have what we call a step program, which increases um, the amount of time you're going to do in prison. For a robbery, it can add an extra 10 years. For a home invasion or a um, carjacking or shooting into a, a car or to a house, it can add 15 to life. And then for just a regular, regular felony, it can add five years. For that individual, we don't always seek to try to get the, the extra 10 years, the extra 15 years. But do we do want to take that person off the street. And we hope that that person realizes that, listen, you almost spent the rest of your life in prison. You've gotten a chance now. It's up to you to see what you're going to do with that. And then we have the third group. The third group is the group of individuals that are committing the most violent crimes. It's the individuals that together as a force, they are enforcing their will on the community in the Bayview, in the Western Edition, in Mission. Those individuals are, are addressed in a different way. Through our office, we will do an indictment. We'll indict five to maybe 10 gang members. The feds will also do the same thing. They will indict maybe 10, 15, or 20 gang members. And by doing that, it's our hope that we have taken a group of individuals away from the community to protect the younger individuals. And the reason I say that and what I mean by that is that, for example, the indictment that we did was 10 gang members in Bayview. And we only went after the 10 most violent gang members, the ones that were committing murders, the ones that were committing robberies. Within their gangs was another subset of individuals that were doing burglaries, that were doing grand theft persons, there were juveniles. Those aren't the individuals that we went after. We went after the most violent ones. By getting the most violent ones, what happened, especially in the Bayview and the Western Edition on the 3rd Street Corridor, and also at 24th and Mission with the MS-13 indictment, there was a lull. There was a lull of homicides. There was a lull in robberies. And better yet, there was a lull in retaliatory shootings. And then what happened is that the younger individuals at that time were laying low. They laid low for a little while. But then what has to be done is you have to find a way to address that lull when it occurs. And that's what we need to do, find a way to have intervention when certain of the most violent members are taken off the streets and then they're the ones who can be helped. Those are the ones we need to find a way. And what we look at is we look at the context of the individual, the external factors, and we try to find out what's the appropriate remedy for that individual. Thank you. Maddie, you started an organization, The Healing Circle, that helps parents who have suffered the death of their child or children by violence. Tell us, what motivated you to do this? Good morning. It's so glad to, I'm so glad to be here. Um, first, uh, <coughs> I want to thank you, Jeff, for inviting me to this panel, um, giving honor to God for allowing me to be here today to do this work, because if it was not for him, I could not be here. Um, I do this work, and I won't just say me, because it's not just me, it's over, it's over 300 families that we represent here in San Francisco alone, 
um, with the healing circle. It's the reason why I do this. I do it because my son, George C. Scott, was murdered um, here in the Western Edition, July 17, 1996, a day before his oldest son, who was at the age of five, his birthday was the next day. His birthday present was getting the notice that his dad had been shot and killed. This is the reason why I do it, um, because 300 families, over 350 families here in San Francisco alone, of that, that I know of personally, that are members of the Healing Circle, cases have not been solved. Because Maggie Lord, who lost three sons to gun violence in the month of August, every two years, that is the reason why I do it. I do it because Betty Cooper lost two sons in the Bayview to violence, and it still remains unsolved. Um, because in 1996, when my son was killed, the same year Tupac and Biggie was killed, it was 96 homicides in San Francisco. And everybody seemed to think that it was just another day in my community. No one knew the pain I, I was suffering. No one knew what I was going through. No one knew how this affected my family, my children, my community. No one seemed to care. Um, I do it because what happened in Columbine should have happened in my neighborhood, and it didn't. There should have been counselors and people there. There was no one there for me when this happened to me. There was no counselors. There was nobody coming to my house to ask me questions about what happened. They already labeled my son in the paper as a gang member. They labeled him as a drug dealer. No media came to me to ask me about my child. They just labeled him. I do it because the people in my community seems invisible and it seems unfair. I do it because I want justice. I want to see the person who killed my son. I want to look him in the face and ask him, why? Why did you kill my son? What was so horrific or what did he do that would allow you to shoot him point blank with four bullets in the face? What would make you do such a thing? I want to meet the individual to let him know that I've already forgiven you. Because if I hadn't forgiven you, I wouldn't be here today. I have to forgive you, but I want to know why. And why do I want to know why? Because I want to get you healed too. Because hurt people hurt people. And apparently you are hurting. You had to be hurting at night to shoot my son in the face like that. And you knew him. You ate at my house. I bought you and him spent time together in, in jail. And I put money on your books. So I want to know why did you kill my son? I want to know why. I want to know why the community <coughs> didn't step up. The community saw it. Everybody was present. I want to know why no one came to say who did it. I want to know why. I want answers. Like all the 300 mothers that we represent in the healing circle, they ask the same question. I want to know why, along with the over 30,000 
unsolved homicides since the 90s, over 30,000, over 30,000 unsolved. So that's over 30,000 families that I represent that want to know why. And we're the Healing Circle for the Soul Support Group, and we believe in healing people. So we go inside of San Quentin, we go inside of San Bruno County Jail, we're in the juvenile justice system. Why? Because all entities, the, the youngster is in juvenile, his mother's in child chiller, or 850 Bryant, and his dad is doing time in San Quentin. So the whole family is incarcerated. So we want to heal the whole family. So that's why we go in. This is our fourth year in San Quentin prison of facing perpetrators, lifers, murderers, face on with them. Because we believe in empathy and we believe that this violence is a learned behavior and it can be unlearned. And it's been given proof by going to San Quentin that it works. Restorative justice does work. Elizabeth, you've been on both sides of youth intervention. As a teenager, you were a recipient of services, and today you're working in youth development and empowerment. What do you think the answer is in terms of reducing gang violence and preventing gang involvement among kids? Um, hello. Well, first, I just want to, you know, again, give thanks for another day here and uh, just the opportunity to share this, uh, this space with everybody. and. Um, all the beautiful courage um, that it takes to be up here and a lot of energy to um, to the healing circle as well. Um, and yes, I've been on both sides. You know, as a juvenile, I was uh, in the juvenile hall and uh, went through that whole system myself. And um, I've worked through tattoo removal and a bunch of other youth development programs. So I would say through personal experience and, um, you know, being raised by a single mom and being having my dad in prison and all that, so uh, and now um, pursuing in my education, I, I would say that there is not one answer. Uh, the answer is that there isn't an answer. Uh, it's a multi-layered approach, and I think that you you've brought that you know um, by bringing this conversation forward is that you know it's not just a law enforcement perspective. It is not just you know the community-based perspective. It is not just a researcher perspective. Um, it is a multi-layered approach, and I think first and foremost, uh, what we do have to consider is meeting youth where they're at. Yes. Um, meeting, meeting the you know, if we're talking about uh, perpetrators of violence or whatnot, or, or, or youth that are system involved or, or involved in quote-unquote gangs, and we need to meet them where they're at. You know, and as everybody has said, it, it, pain. Pain produces pain and hurt produces more hurt, right? And so I think that what is fundamental is um, is addressing that that pain and uh, and not really um, looking at folks at, in a punitive way as saying, oh man, this this guy he's he's a beast, he's notorious, so we got to lock him up, you know? That that person is hurting because his his mom might be locked up or his father's been in and out. He might have been abused, you know? And I think that what's first and foremost that we need to meet that individual, um, meet that individual's needs. What What is that pain that is going through? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm 
pursuing a master's in social work, so I have that, that lens, you know, that um, we need to heal our communities and, and take those answers um, upon ourselves. And so I would really, you know, I'm, everybody has already said, <laughs> I think, um, sh we share the same perspective, but definitely um, besides meeting youth where they're at, we need a, a create community-anchored solutions, and that involves, you know, a discourse with uh, policymakers, law enforcement officers, and whatnot. But I think um, also as people of color, we need to be accountable and, and be good, positive role models to our youngsters and, and greet them on the bus and not be scared of our own people. Um, sometimes, you know, we be... You know, clenching our purse, and, and we, we stereotype ourselves, and we oppress ourselves in that way. I think that, you know, cross, cross color lines, we need, to, we need to be accountable, and we need to respect each other, and um, walk with integrity, and greet our kids. Those are our kids. You know, that's our community. And so we need to be, we need to be those role models for those kids, because, because if we lock ourselves up in, 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 in the ivory tower, in the institutions, we're not providing that, that um, what, what are we providing for them? We're not providing those alternatives, you know? And so, um, and so yeah, I, I, you know, I feel like, you know, hearing from the brothers out here, the work that UP is doing, a lot of the, the work that um, community agencies, like the Center for Young Women's Development is like, they're out there and they, you know, are turning it out. But you don't have to be a community, um, community-based agency to be a positive role model, right? And so I think that a smile goes a long way, you know? And if a kid, you know, just because of the base of, of, of how he's dressed, and he emits fear and people demonstrate that they're scared of him, then what do you think he's gonna do, you know? So um, I think that that's one of the different approaches. I also think that um, it's really important to, to be flexible as community workers or as law enforcement, as social workers, we really need to be flexible because things change and there isn't just like there isn't just one solution. Um, kids might take 10 steps forward, you might be working with them as a case manager and they might make such significant progress and then something goes down in their home or their cousin you know, might have been shot. Something goes down and then they take eight steps back. We need to be able to be flexible with them um, and be there through that process and not just say, hey, you know, I'm not working with you anymore because you let me down. And um, I think that's really important as well, you know, and not to be rigid in that sense. And I think um, collaborations are very important as well and in a non-hierarchical sense. So if we're talking about bringing everybody to the table to develop those community-anchored solutions, then youth, um, should have the same importance as the district supervisor, as the police enforcement officer, as an executive director. That's a real approach to community anchored solutions. And, um, and through that, we build real community. And we have a set, you know, I have respect for my brother over here, my, my respect for my sister over there, you know, and you have that, you develop that accountability and then um, an integrity amongst one another. We're not scared of each other in that way. And we're more able to express ourselves and really develop real solutions, especially in a time where, you know, the budgets are cut um, left and right. Uh, we, the, only, the only thing we have left is our human relationships because, honestly, we know health and human services are the first things to get slashed. And so by really developing those, those relationships with each other, I think that um, it will go a long way. And um, lastly, partnerships with local business. I know that um, that's really important just, you know, instead of being uh, 
shunning our kids out or monitoring them as they walk in, why don't you offer them a job, <laughs> you know? And um, developing those partnerships um, could also just lead to an array of other things. Prevention, um, that kid could, you know, be a conduit for the youth in his community and be, you know, prevent uh, theft maybe in that store, who knows? <laughs> I'm now going to ask uh, Professor Leap uh, to ask some specific uh, questions, and then we're going to get to your questions uh, in just uh, about eight, eight or nine minutes. And I'll ask the panelists to keep your uh, responses uh, brief because we want to get as much interaction as possible. Georgia? Okay, but you're going to have to bear with me. I'm going to go off script for 30 seconds. Sorry, Jeff. Um, because there's a person here in the audience, and I meant to mention her during my keynote, and I didn't, and it's someone that you all should try to talk to during a break or during lunch because someone like her should be on this panel, and it's the one, one person missing, and it's a public defender, and this is someone who worked as a public defender for 19 years in Los Angeles. She's now the director of legal services at Homeboy Industries. Now I'm going to embarrass her. Her name is Ellie Miller. She's sitting right there, and she, there she is. <laughs> Public defenders are legal ministers. You are, and you're part of this picture. Okay, now I'll go back to what I was supposed to be doing. Forgive me. I'm going to sort of, we've heard everybody's contribution now I want to talk about what's working and what's not working. And I'm going to eat, ask each of the panel members to speak the truth to one another. So let me direct some early remarks. Maddie, you have suffered unimaginable pain. And I think I'm going to take sort of, make an assumption here that I can speak for the audience in saying, I cannot imagine what it would be like to lose a child. From that pain, from your community organizing, what do you say to Commander Beale? Things have changed. It's not 1996 anymore. What's going on? What do you say to him? What does he say to you? And I'm going to ask you to keep the remarks brief. What would you say? And, I'm, and Commander Beale, fear not. I'm going to give you a chance to respond. You're hearing about the CRN and all these things. What's your reaction, Mandy? What do you say to him? What I say to Commander Bill is um, there needs to be more police sensitivity training in um, SFPD when it comes to victims of violence. Because oftentimes many of our parents that are on the scene when this happens, majority of them get arrested. And they don't understand the, the crime scene. All they see is their child laying there in a pool of blood. And, all, and they want to do is get to that child and touch them, not knowing that they may damage a crime scene. I, will, I would like to see, Commander Bill, more uh, sensitivity training with the police department and learning about the victim's family, maybe from the CRN perspective or us who are present when it happens in the healing circle, because we're there too when it happens. We know the first thing we want to do is get to that family to prevent any other further violence, and that is an intervention. I would like to see that happen. Commander Beale, 
How do you feel? Well, you know, uh, first I want to start off by saying that we do have we do have sensitive we do have sensitivity training. We have 32 hours of that at our police academy. However, you're correct. Uh, it is unacceptable for uh, any parent to be uh, to be arrested uh, at the scene because they're just trying to to be there for their deceased child. I personally, I can tell you for a fact, I've never seen that happen. I've never heard of that ever mm-hmm. happening. I would say that they're not being arrested. They're perhaps being pulled away for their, not only for their, you know, it's for their own good too. They're being pulled away. They're trying to be calm. They're, they're being calmed down and they're being uh, assisted. Uh, and if, they put in, if they're being put into a police radio car, uh, they may be driven to the hospital, maybe taken to another location, maybe be, be, be with other family members that can help them. But I, I can assure you that I've never seen one or know of one that's ever been arrested at the scene like that. Okay. All right. Now, as I said, we want to have a conversation here. So I'm going to turn around to Mr. Fleming. And as you can see, we're going to kind of go back and forth. Mr. Fleming, what would you say to German. What role can he play? You talked about the three groups of individuals. And you mentioned that first group, the youth who are on the edge. And you mentioned the second group, the group that would have step-by-step sentencing. Where is there anywhere for someone's skill set like German with his skill set to assist you in that effort? Um, I like the question and I'll tell you why. I think that the CBOs and the groups that are working with the youth are doing the best they can. However, I feel that sometimes you need tough love. And what I mean by that is that they need to set guidelines for these youth and make them understand that if they don't go according to the program, they're going to be out of the program. Mm One thing that I like to see, especially the, the youth that's on the edge, when that individual, what happens, the individual will get arrested, and I'll look and I'll decide whether I'm not going to file charges. And a lot of times I don't file charges. And what happens is that person's released from jail the second day, and then he's off and he's back in the street and he's back in the community. I think there should be somewhere within the police department or the sheriff's program for someone like Jeremy to meet with that person the day he's being released and to set up a program for him. So I think that would be a very effective means there for him to come and intervene. And as dealing with the violent youth, I think that they need to make them understand that they've done something that there are going to be repercussions for and there are going to be consequences and that they're going to have to go and serve their time but not get lost in the shuffle. One thing about prison is that it can have two effects. One, it can make someone come out and want to be a more productive member of society, or they can become more integrated into the gang lifestyle. When you go there, you have the Nuestro family, you have the Mexican mafia, you have the black guerrilla family. What happens is these individuals can go in and they align with these prison groups, and now they come out and they're more respected in the community in the wrong aspect, and then they're going to do something uh, more severe. So I think he needs to... We need to, with German and other groups, also, once these people go to prison, don't lose touch with them. So meet them when they're being sentenced, but then go meet with them more often while they're in prison and keep them focused on the program for when they get out. I love something you just did, and I want to applaud you. You said 
he needs to, and then you corrected yourself and said, we need to. That may be subtle, but we have to all be thinking along those lines. Okay, so German and Gino. German, you're recently out of prison, correct? Mm -hmm. And Gino, you've grown up in Richmond, an area that is seen as, is labeled gang infested. When you listen to this, when you listen to Eric Fleming say these things, how do each of you react? German, you say first. What do you think of what he's saying? Could you work with him? Could you do that? Is that enough? Is tough love the answer? And then Gino, I'm going to ask you as well. What do you think, German? I think uh, we have to have some kind of understanding of one common goal. Our goal is to make our community safe, violent free. That's our goal, right? But the main thing is working together and to know that we are working for a youth. We're trying to better his life, trying to find resources, trying to make him a better person. Some of these kids that we work with, they don't have no understanding what a father is. They don't have no understanding what a mother is, what a son is, what a kid is. I think those need to be defined. And that's what's missing in our society. And two, when we incarcerate somebody, we have to do something for them. I was incarcerated for 28 years. I've seen guys that are 18, 19 get sentenced to four or five years in prison. When they come out, they're worse than when they were in prison. So the thing we need to do, like you say, be in touch with, these, with the individual that we work with during the time that they're going to their hearing or during the time that they're going sentencing, but we need to provide something while they're incarcerated. And the thing that I experienced in prison is, you know, you just wait for the time to go by. You don't have, there's no criteria of you, when you get out, what you need to do, whether you need your high school diploma or not, the time just clicks. When your time is up, you go. You ain't got to do anything. You ain't got to work. There's nothing you have to do. You can stay in your cell. And the majority of the guys, they do that. So when they get out, all they know is they, they, they get involved with other gang members in there and get worse. So the thing we have to do, and if we want it to work, I believe everybody is redeemable. I really believe that. And if not so, I wouldn't be here. You know, and, and I know I'm making an impact in our society. I know that. I know the things that I talk to these kids work. You know, but the thing that we have to come as a community, we have to come with a police officer, with a probation officer. Sometimes that's the problem right there is the status. When I'm ready to go to juvenile hall, I have a problem getting a pass. And I go there all the time, you know, and just to be able to communicate and make contact. And the same person that's giving me the pass don't want to give me a pass all of a sudden. Right. You know, so those, we have to come together as a community right. and set aside the status, set aside the power that you have and the authority that you have and come together to work for a common goal to make our community better. You know, there, there is a theme emerging, even as we're listening, about leveling the statuses in these collaborations that everybody is equalized. I'm hearing these words over and over again. But I want to go back to something Eric Fred said. Gino, tough love. Does that help? Um, Tell the truth. Negative. Uh, <laughs> okay. Why not? Because, I mean, tough love, 
when you get to have love in, in the household, you can tell that it's, it's genuine. Not saying that Eric isn't genuine, but I would have to, and just like any other kid, would want to sit down when there's no cameras around and really see where his heart is. Is, is it just a, you know, a job and a career base to where he, you know, he's trying to, you know, elevate in the ranks of, uh, you know, his career, or does he really care, or is he going to take a position in D.C. and forget all about what he started here? You know, so that's something that I would definitely um, care about. And another thing that we have to understand that these kids are not scholars. You know, like they're not someone that come from an educational background or was taught that in their household. You know, so they don't know how to differentiate how to make the right choices. They just know what they've been taught. And I'm speaking from personal experience. I didn't have, when I went to high school, and I barely, I graduated a 1.78 at a GPA. When I did high school, I went to, like, we was like the teachers. We ran the school, like, literally, it was your east side. I went to Kennedy High School in Richmond on Cutting Boulevard. And it's surrounded by three, four different hoods to where there's constant shootings during class, after class. We had to have all varsity football games during school hours, <laughs> not at night like any normal high school. We couldn't have it at 7 o'clock because of the potential danger that it possessed. You know, um, we shot dice in the classroom in front of teachers. Like, teachers allowed this. There was constant substitute teachers, lack of books. So, like, this is what we, we, we inherit this, so we take that onto the streets. Like, this is what they're teaching us. You know, it's, so as long as our household is dysfunction, so was the school system was dysfunction. And not saying that it's a total um, reason for why I and, and others turn out the way that we turned out, but it plays a part. So just like I have to be held accountable for the choices I make, so does society have to be held accountable. Um, I, I keep hearing the term gang up here and like I mentioned earlier, or let me elaborate more so on that. In the black community in the Bay Area, the, the, it's a community, it's not gangs. There's no bloods, there's no crips, there's no, you know what I mean? there's no GDs or vice lords. Those are gangs. Those are, uh, in Georgia Book, the people that she talked to, you can move up in the ranks as if you're working for, you know, Apple or IBM. You can move from regular employee to CEO. In the black community Bay Area, it's not like that. No one is saying, okay, you go do this, and then when you come back, you're going to give me this. And, you know, it's not, it's not structured like that. It's, there's no one saying or telling you how to operate. You know, there's a term in the black community on streets called a one-man army. And a one-man army is just someone who acts alone and go into another community and just terrorizes his enemy. He didn't bring nobody with him. He's just, he's called a one-man army. He don't have to report to nobody on his hood or on his turf where he grew up, none of that. He do what he wants to do. Now, you know, I don't know if that's worse than uh, a Bloods and a Crip that has a, a hierarchy and, and a chief of command, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's not a gang. You know, it's, it's a community. And I, I know that I'm not going to get the, uh, the word gang abolished from uh, the media and nobody, but I just want to clarify that because as long as you keep putting a label on it, it's going to somewhat have a, a negative connotation towards these kids, particularly in the black community. We're now going to go to some uh, of your questions, and the first, the first one is for Georgia, and it's uh, what happened to Bobby? Did you help him? 
And was he prosecuted for the drive-by shooting? <laughs> I, I'm, when I tell this story, I'm, I'm asked this. And by the way, before I answer the question, I, and I'm sorry, Elizabeth, we didn't get to you, but I also want to thank all the panelists as I sort of pitted them against each other very in a very intentional way. And that wasn't meant to be hostile so much as to say, we all need to listen to one, another point, one another's points of view. And I think what Gino just said about what happens when the camera is turned off, what happens when we're not here sitting on a panel, is the most important work we're going to do. Now, what happened to Bobby? Um, it's an interesting story, needless to say. I intervened, and I was young, and what I did not know intellectually, I made up for in energy. And I intervened uh, on the basis that he was a child that had been subjected to incredible abuse and was very much a kid in the child welfare system, which happens to many violent youth. Hurt people hurt people. Um, I intervened. He was never prosecuted. He was 14 years old. He was put into what would be thought of now as a, a psychiatric facility. It was a child's psychiatric facility. Um, he underwent all kinds of treatment, training, came out, went back to school, really went through recovery, and then graduated high school, went to community college, and I'd like someone in the audience to guess what profession he wound up successfully going into. Law enforcement. So, and he was, uh, he was not with the LAPD. He was with a smaller police department for 30 years. He has since retired. Um, I have, he has been married twice. He has raised four children. And he has lived an extraordinary life. He truly has. And I'm grateful for having had him in my life as sort of a guidepost. And I do think it's sort of the ultimate irony that he turned out to be a police officer. Okay, we, we have some other questions, very, very good questions. And I, I wanted, uh, we don't have much time left, but I want to work these in to get a uh, response. Uh, I work at San Quentin Prison. They segregate inmates based on color and gangs. Why do prisons uh, not work on educating inmates on social relations, uh, racial tolerance, and why don't they find a way uh, so the different races uh, can get to know each other? I'd like to answer on that. Um, segregation has always been a big problem in this country. I'm a product of Jim Crow growing up in New Orleans. And the thing is, um, our model in the healing circles, each one reach one to each one. Uh, we believe in that. And we believe also that education is the key and that we all need to sit at the table. I don't believe in segregation um, as far as inmates. I think they need to tear that barrier down and put people together no matter what. And the healing circle, when we go inside of the walls of San Quentin, it's not just black inmates. It's Hispanic, Pacific Islanders, white, it's Native Americans. It's everybody in that room. 
And yet when they leave that room, they go back to their communities that's segregated, and they too don't like it. So they don't like it, and it's a barrier that has to be torn down. We know it works. I know it works personally. Uh, being in there for the last four years with the inmates, um, everybody, we even sit. We make it a point that everybody mixes up even the seating. That you don't just sit with a black person or a white person or we're all in this together. It's about all of us or none of us. That's the bottom line. And it has to be that mentality. German? Yeah, I think it's, it's a way to control the prisoners, mm -hmm. to divide them, and it takes the pressure out the guards and everybody else. When you come in, <clears throat> they say we want to stop violence, we want to stop this in our prison system, but yet you promote violence by just segregating. When an individual comes, the first thing they ask you is, What's your, where are you from? What's your nationality? Okay, you're, you want to sell you with a black. Okay, we'll sell you with a black. And they, that's how they de divide and conquer. And that's the way the United States is made up. That's how it works. You know, you go north and south Vietnam, for instance. They divide people so that the pressure won't be on them. And that's how, the, that's how I see the system. You know, I see it in that bigger term with North and South Vietnam, but I see it in prison, how they divide inmates, you know. And it's scary if inmates unite, and they don't like that. It, when I first come to prison, it'll be a big thing if I went and sat with a black. It'll be a big thing if a white, uh, a Caucasian sat with, sat with an Asian. And now they're in frantic. They're saying, man, they're getting together. And we only did that one time where everybody got together and we got what we wanted. When you unite, you can conquer. Mm -hmm. And they divide them so they conquer them. Next question is for Commander Beal. Uh, how can a community-based organization contact the gang task force for speaking engagements or other collaborative efforts? Uh, it's, it's real simple. If you call 553-1484, ask to speak to Lieutenant Jim Miller, uh, and make an appointment, I mean, he'll, he'll for sure have uh, uh, any amount of his officers be at your engagement. And is there any effort to formalize a relationship with the community-based organization so they understand what the expectations are, you understand what the expectations are, as well as the limitations? Uh, no, uh, I say honestly, right now, we do not have that effort uh, in place. It's a good idea. It's something that I know we talked about. Uh, it's very important for us to understand exactly what the CBOs are doing, what their, what their goals are, and it's also, I think, important for the CBOs to have specific training for their individuals so that they're all doing the same thing and doing it right. Uh, and also, they, they should also have some guidelines and some, and some sort of criteria to, to evaluate their successes, uh, either in, in, in a, both a quarterly and a yearly basis. Um, thank you. Uh, last question for Elizabeth. Um, what, what are the types of job opportunities that are available for at-risk youth, uh, and what are the funding uh, opportunities? <laughs> right? You guys already know. It's like silence. Um, there, there aren't many job opportunities for youth right now, and with the way that funding is currently, it's only being reduced. Uh, so. What we try to do um, is think creatively, and so um, we try to create like internship programs where we really try to infuse youth through a culture and identity, and through this positive identity, we utilize a lot of um, like just 
pre-Columbian non-Western ways of trying to have youth um, identify and um, through that knowledge also we uh, infuse like political education so that they could make a good choice and we stipend them and but there are other like stipended programs like Oasis or like Conscious Youth Media Crew and so while there aren't many um, opportunities for you there's MAIP but not everybody could for example work for MAIP if you're an AB 540 student um, and uh, all the work permits that are required also require a social security number so for the um, undocumented youth in in the city um, those are all uh, opportunities that aren't available to them so I think um, alternative pathways are are a good way to go such as those internship opportunities that also use 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 these venues as an opportunity to have kids reflect and hopefully um, make positive choices by, um, you know, leading them to a path of self-determination. Right. And MAIP, uh, for everyone, is the Mayor's Youth Employment Program. And Mayor Ed Lee has made a commitment this summer to employ as many youth as possible and to uh, triple the number of, of youth opportunities for youth. So that's something that, uh, that we, we hope will help. I want to uh, thank all of our panelists today um, and give them a round of applause. The way we've structured this panel is that uh, Dr. Keel is going to do a short presentation to introduce the topic of neuroscience and psychopathy. <laughs> uh, it's a hard word to say. Um, and uh, then we're going to go to asking questions of all the different uh, panel members, and I will turn it over to Dr. Keel. Well, thank you very much uh, for the kind introduction and for the invitation to speak to you today. So I am a, uh, a neuroscientist. I study um, your brains, essentially. And um, what we're going to do is run through a, um, to try to kick off this um, symposium, a kind of the usual suspect, so to speak, um, and what neuroscience might have to offer in terms of helping to understand individuals who um, have different personality disorders or problems or mental illness. Um, or just aberrant behavior generally. So your first client that you're studying or that you have to defend is named Brad. And Brad's a 40-year-old male. He has a normal IQ. Um, like many in California, he's been divorced and remarried. He has no history of psychiatric illness um, and oddly, uh, or uh, maybe uh, has worked as a correctional officer for a while. He's also then worked as a school teacher. 16 years ago, he hit his head, um, knocked himself unconscious, and, uh, but had no kind of neurological events following that. Um, and for the last two years, he's had some migraines. Um, Brad also um, started using pornography on the internet. He's admitted to this. He started soliciting sex from women working at massage parlors in 2010. Um, he he uh, reports that he has a very high sex drive, and he conceals this behavior because he feels that it, feels that it is wrong. And um, there's a picture of Brad here. <laughs> In 2010, Brad makes some subtle sexual advances to his stepdaughter. Um, uh, Mom finds out about this, and Brad is legally removed from the home and diagnosed as a pedophile. Um, he is chemically castrated in treatment to try to reduce his um, poor sexual behavior. Um, he is found guilty of child molestation, and he is sentenced to either an inpatient sexual addiction facility or um, jail. And Brad chooses 
rehab. So he goes to the sexual-based uh, addiction rehab. Um, in rehab, he starts being inappropriate with staff. He starts to try to solicit sex from other clients in rehab. Um, he's expelled. Um, Brad also has, oddly, some bedwetting, which is a neurological symptom um, at this age, 40 years old. He's also, um, the night before he goes to prison, he complains of a headache. And the doctors say, well, this headache's pretty severe, so we're going to send you and get an MRI. And they do an MRI, and it looks like this. Now, you guys don't look at this every day like I do, but this is, uh, you might not quite see it there, but this is a tumor. This is ventricles. That's the fluid-filled part of your brain. Another way to look at it is like this. Yeah, that's not good, right, when you see something like this on an MRI scan. So the question is, is this, is this tumor related to his aberrant behavior that he's started to um, have? And now what you find is that this huge tumor, tumor sorry, is resected, um, and he's recovered from all of the different memory and other types of problems. He goes right through and aces a Sexaholics Anonymous course. He's then returned home, and his wife takes him back in because he is supposedly cured. So Brad's just been arrested again. This is what you're dealing with as a public defender, again, for trying to sexually assault his stepdaughter, and now he's assigned to be your client. Do you order another MRI? And you do, and guess what? The tumor's back. And so the question is, um, is this brain science relevant at some level to um, you know, Brad's sentencing or Brad's treatment or Brad's um, mitigation? So we'll talk about that. Now you have another kid. Here you have a child. He's 16-year-old. He's got above-average IQ. He's done very well in high school. No history of head injury or drug use. He's involved in sporting activities and other types of social activities. Um, and one night, he's out with some friends. There's a fight over a rival football game. And Justin hits another teen in the head. Um, the teen ends up in a serious coma with a head injury. Um, Justin is charged with attempted murder and use of a weapon, amongst other things. Um, and here's his mugshot. Um, <laughs> Justin, uh, the prosecution uh, says that they want to raise Justin to adult court and seek a sentence of life without the possibility of parole for attempted murder. But you remember, wait, isn't there something about this? Maybe the Supreme Court has talked about this. And it turns out that in 2009, Graham v. Florida, the Supreme Court eliminated the sentence of life without the possibility of parole for non-homicide cases. And why did they do this? Well, for the first time, the Supreme Court cited adolescent neuroscience as being relevant to their decision-making. And so the Supreme Court was given this video, which you'll see here. This is a 12-year-old brain. And what happens over time is a 12-year-old brain develops. And if this works, hey, you'll watch the brain start to mature until you hit about 24 or 25 and you reach full maturation. So now for those of you that are parents, you don't need a brain scan to say that your child is a different brain than when they were an adolescent. And for those of us that went through adolescence, we know it was a time of heightened impulsivity and poor decision-making, et cetera, and we might have all gotten ourselves in a little bit of trouble. But the Supreme Court needs a picture of a brain in order to make a decision that adolescents have different levels of responsibility. So now the way to look at this is here, so that we can see there's this very nice um, development of neuronal change over time um, that's associated with changes in cognition and changes in how you, um, you know, process, view the world, and make decisions. Okay. Now you have another client named George. Uh, George is a 55-year-old white male offender. He's had a lifetime of history of getting in and out of uh, jail for minor petty crimes and things like that, petty crimes. 
His IQ estimate is very low. George has a very low IQ. Uh, previously, they might have referred to him as being retarded, um, other types of things in the DSM. Um, he's arrested now for murder, and the prosecution is seeking the death penalty. And Atkins v. Virginia, the Supreme Court said that you're not allowed to execute individuals who have low IQ. But I get phone calls all the time from um, count defense expert says his IQ is 60, too low to execute. Prosecution says his IQ is 72, high enough to execute. So what can neuroscience do? Is there anything that neuroscience can do? Oh, that's George. Actually, I'm just kidding. Actually, this is George. <laughs> so what do we know about the neuroscience of gray matter, about your brain? What can I tell you about that? Well, so the good news, or sorry, the bad news, is that as you get older, gray matter goes down. I did this quick analysis on my computer here before I came in to give this talk over the weekend, and all of these areas that I'm showing you there in blue, this is the bottom of the brain, those are your eyeballs, these are slices going all the way up through the top, and no, I didn't slice my own brain up to do this, I took a picture of it, and um, all these areas that you see here in blue are going down as you get older. That's aging. It sucks. I'm getting older. And so... What do you think? The tumor area, by the way, of poor decision-making is right up in there. And so you're seeing that gray matter in the brain changes over time as you age. It also turns out that gray matter is highly correlated with IQ. So depending on the type of um, how we measure IQ, we find a nice relationship between IQ um, and gray matter. So I'm showing these just statistical maps and these beautiful color images that neuroscientists love to play with. And so now I can show you these maps. And guess what? It turns out that I don't actually need to even test you for IQ. I could take your brain and put it in my algorithm, and it's going to tell me what your IQ is. It's going to fit it to a distribution of thousands of other people in the world, and we're going to be able to tell you, probably better than your prosecution's witness or your defense witness, what your actual true IQ is. Isn't that neat? That's what neuroscience is likely to do in the very near future. Okay, now you have this client. Anyone know who that is? Exactly. That's Hinckley. And Hinckley was a 26-year-old male who tried to assassinate President Reagan. Hinckley said that he did the crime, the crime which he did, to try to gain the affection, which he did not, of Jody, of, uh, of Jody Foster. Um, and Hinckley pled insanity, and brain images were used for the very first time in this case. And what they used to support the diagnosis that he was psychotic, that he, has, he heard voices, he had hallucinations, he had other types of delusions, that, um, and particularly his belief about Jodie Foster. And the brain images at the time were something called enlarged ventricles, which are the fluid-filled spaces in the brain. We know that it's not diagnostic now of having psychosis. It's a risk factor. If you have enlarged ventricles, you're more likely than if you don't have large ventricles to develop these types of illnesses. But Hinckley was found insane based on the, this information and others um, and sentenced to an insane asylum. And Hinckley's actually been now released um, starting in 2009, 2010, on day parole to visit his family, his parents, they're still alive, um, and he's been just fine. He hasn't had any, he's well treated and managed, and he's been out um, now since then. Um, sorry, I already summarized that because they told me I had to go way faster. Now it's actually easy. If you happen to have schizophrenia or you hear voices or hallucinations, it is with 99% certainty I can show that your brain is different than someone who doesn't have those. In fact, if you have schizophrenia, oops, sorry, if you have schizophrenia um, versus control, just pretend like you're a little pattern classifier. What do you see that's different? 
Well, you see how these areas here are much different. They're much more engaged than those areas there, comparing these three to those three. You might see that there's a lot more blue as well in this map than in these maps. And look at this area right there. It's very different than that area, much more engaged in a control individual than in a patient. And then if you have bipolar illness, another type of mental illness, you're even different than if you have schizophrenia. And in fact, when patients present to the emergency room and they're psychotic, they could have this illness or this illness. Those are the two most common. And physicians can't tell the difference, but our MRI scanners can. Okay? So this is the point. So psychiatry is moving towards using these imaging uh, systems to help improve psychiatric diagnosis. And the legal system is like, ooh, I can actually use this instead of a psychiatrist to actually support whether or not my client has a mental illness or not. And then they would be able to inform and make decisions um, about uh, how these things should be used then in the legal system. This is the so-called intersection of neuroscience and law. Um, but what about this guy? <laughs> Anthony Hopkins in full Hannibal Lecter regalia. What does his brain look like? So let me teach you psychology 101. If your behavior is completely different, your brain is going to be different. Men versus women. Women, you all know that men have different behavior, correct? Yeah? They have different brains than you do. And so our MRI systems now are exquisitely capable of telling you how those gender differences manifest in terms of structure and function. And we can also map and study people like him. So psychopathy is what I study. I study individuals we call psychopaths. And if you want to look at your spousal score on this, you know, <laughs> see me later. Individuals with psychopathy have a profound inability to really appreciate or lack empathy, guilt, and remorse, and they're extremely callous. Those are some of the central things. So let me give you my interpretation of how to understand this. So how many of you have seen a judge ask a defendant, do you feel any remorse for what you've done? Yeah, almost everyone, right? At least on TV. How many of you, and you look at that defendant, and sometimes that defendant doesn't have a good answer to that question, et cetera, what are you going to do? So here, let me give you this question. How many of you can solve this equation? <laughs> now you know how a psychopath feels when he's asked about remorse. It's a blank slate. This is one of Einstein's field equations for the theory of general relativity. There's probably only three people in the world that can solve this equation. The point is, is that individuals who lack this ability that most of us take for granted, empathy, guilt, and remorse, that's how they feel when you're asked about empathy, guilt, and remorse. So hopefully I've given you just a touch of psychopathy for a nanosecond there. So now go back. Oh, sorry. PC error. Move that thing over there all the way to the right. My apologies. So how do we study people like him? Well, we can transport him, right, out from the prison to the hospital and scan them. But one of the things that my lab does is um, we built a really nice trailer in New Mexico. Here's my trailer. Yes, I know the jokes are coming. I live in a trailer in New Mexico. And, um, uh, but this trailer has a really nice MRI in it. This is a couple million dollar trailer. And we take this out to various facilities around the country now. And we work with inmates who volunteer for studies of treatment and how to make them better and everything else. And what we found is that individuals who have those psychopathic traits, only about a third or a quarter of all inmates will score really high on those traits they have reduced gray matter density in these areas. This is the same area where that guy had that tumor. Okay? This is the same area that decreases when you get older. But these average, these individuals controlling for all of the important things, history and severity of substance use, age, IQ, any other types of access one problems, head injury, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, environment. They're all from you know, pretty average environments for this population. Extremely different in terms of brain structure. 
So does this go towards mitigation or aggravation? Or should it, how should it be used? How should this information be used? I use it to try to develop treatments for people like Hannibal Lecter. Um, but that is how I thought we would kickstart our little seminar right now. I'm happy to answer any other questions. But before I do, I have to um, jump away here and say that I didn't do this all by myself. I had lots of individuals who helped me collect this work with this data. And in particular, this research is all funded by the National Institute of Health, your tax dollars, to help us try to do this. And so with that, I'll thank you for your attention and turn it back over to our moderator, who will um, uh, ask us lots of tough questions. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, I'd like to, um, I'm going to ask a few questions, but I was hoping that we could get a, a debate going here rather than with me trying to ask intelligent questions and just have the very smart people just talking amongst themselves to educate us. So um, one of the, the, the questions that we wanted to talk about today was the idea of free will in terms of the criminal justice system. And I would like to ask each of you, um, is there a definition of free will in the context of your individual work. And we'll start with you, um, Dr. Keel. Uh, I would punt that one right over to David, who is the <laughs> expert in free will. And then uh, we actually spent all last night debating this. But um, why not David, David starts. OK. Uh, did you consciously choose to do that? Uh, <laughs> I think that free will is a mainly unhelpful concept, uh, and I think that you have to ask the question uh, from the legal system and from the science uh, perspective as to what free will might mean. Uh, on the science side, the question really is, and this is what we were debating, uh, is the question whether you can operationally define free will so you can measure it. Uh, from a scientist's standpoint, uh, a construct doesn't really mean anything if you can't measure it. Uh, and I've asked many, many neuroscientists, including Kent, uh, well, what exactly does free will mean, uh, and how do you measure it? And it could be something like volitional control. It could be something like impulsivity or impulse control. Uh, and you get back to the basic problem that uh, Chris LeBogan, who is a colleague of Anita's at, at Vanderbilt, has put, the way he's put it, is how do you distinguish an irresistible impulse from a, an impulse not resisted? Uh, and there's a basic gray area, a difficult uh, ability to say, uh, did you actually choose that, and did you choose it in a way that uh, the law would recognize? So the law all the time develops concepts uh, that uh, scientists are interested in studying, it might be competency, for example. Well, competency uh, is really a, a multifaceted construct uh, from a legal perspective. Uh, it could be competency to be executed. It could be competency to commit a crime. Uh, it could be co competency to uh, contribute to the decision whether to voluntarily commit yourself to a mental hospital. It could be competency to uh, participate in an abortion decision. Uh, and so competency means many different things. Uh, and so the first thing you have to do as a scientist is ask the question, well, what does the law mean by it? Because if you want me to measure it, I have to somehow apply it. Uh, so going back to the question of free will, because the scientists can't operationally define it, they can't measure it, uh, they're not really that much use uh, to legal debates about free will. Now, what does it mean on the legal side? I actually think the idea of free will, or what's often referred to as volitional control, uh, plays a very big part in legal systems. 
but I think in legal systems, we don't mean it empirically. We don't mean it as a factual construct. We don't mean that there's actually this idea that somebody has free will and has made a conscious choice uh, and that we can somehow measure it. I think that in the criminal law, what we mean by free will is essentially a conclusion. It's not a premise, it's a conclusion. We have concluded that the person should have and will take responsibility for their action, and therefore they had free will, and they're going to take the consequences for that. The problem is when we start actually believing the rhetoric, we actually start believing uh, what we're saying, if you think that, if you use free will normatively, that is used as a value judgment about when somebody should have to take responsibility, and you use it that way in the criminal law, what happens is it starts bleeding over into what I call the quasi-criminal law, which is civil commitment. In the civil commitment area, we also use this notion of free will that, again, we call volitional control, but we use it, and, and the classic example today, because it's, it's so high profile, are sexually violent predators. Sexually violent predators under uh, constitutional doctrine, under the Supreme Court's two decisions in Kansas versus Hendricks and Kansas versus Crane, the Supreme Court said that under the Constitution, in order to civilly commit, to not criminally, but to civilly commit a sexually violent predator, you have to demonstrate two independent factual constructs. One is you have to demonstrate lack of volitional control which is defined legislatively as mental abnormality, which often gets defined as a, a personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder. Uh, and the second construct you have to prove is that they're likely to be violent in the future. Now, on the civil side, those both ought to be factual judgments. Does the person lack volitional control and does the person, is the person likely to be violent in the future? If, however, we are actually using at least the first construct, not empirically, but we're using it normatively, then we are potentially violating two provisions of the Constitution, the Ex Post Facto Clause and the Double Jeopardy Clause. Because what you're essentially doing is calling upon the fact finder, whether it's a judge or, or, or a jury, you're calling upon the fact finder to make a judgment about whether the person is mentally abnormal defined as substantial lack of volitional control, but we've never actually operationally defined what lack of volitional control is, so an expert can't come in and testify that this person, as a factual matter, lacks volitional control. So then what's doing the work? Well, what's doing the work is the fact that the person has behaved badly in the past. And because they didn't control their behavior in the past, they are therefore likely not to be able to control their behavior today and tomorrow. But if you use, if you basically define lack of volitional control as past bad acts, then you're back in the realm of essentially punishing them a second time for their original acts, which by definition is a violation of the ex post facto and double jeopardy clauses. So part of the problem that I see is our inability to define a legal construct that we consider, if you think about it not too deeply, as a factual concern. But the scientists say, well, I don't understand that as a factual matter and I can't define or measure it. Then the law is just sort of set free to use normative value-based uh, considerations in making decisions about civil commitment. Dr. Farhani, or Professor Farhani. 
All right, so I'm going to uh, do this a little bit shorter, I think, which is um, let's start with uh, a question to everybody in the audience. All right, so if you like chocolate cake, raise your left hand. And if you do not like chocolate cake, raise your right hand. So all people who like chocolate cake, left hand, don't like chocolate cake, right hand. All right, hands down. How many people found it difficult to raise your hand by yourself? Not very many, right? You made a choice. You thought about it. You decided, and you acted. And uh, my concept of what free will is, is the ability to act consistent with your preferences and desires. Just that simple. Now, how many people here feel like you have control over whether or not you like chocolate cake? Raise either hand. Fewer, right? So there are two different things going on that we often conflate when we talk about free will. One is your predispositions to preferences and desires, okay? And that may be impulsivity, that may be violence, that may be antisocial personality disorder, that may be a preference for chocolate cake, a preference for sugar. I did my 23andMe profile. If you don't know what that is, it's a really neat genetic thing that you can go online and you give a little saliva sample and it tells you a bunch of things about predispositions for entertainment value. And it says, I need 16 grams more sugar than the average person per day. You could know that by looking in my purse because I have a bunch of Twizzlers in there, which I enjoy. Um, and I have very little control over my preferences and desires, but I do have a choice. Do I buy Twizzlers? Do I buy the super sugary candy? Do I eat the chocolate cake? The question in my mind is the disaggregation of these two things. Are you compelled, based on your preferences and desires, to act, to raise your hands, to take a gun and fire it, or are you not? And it turns out neuroscience helps us answer that question somewhat in that there are a number of studies that try to look at the flexibility of actions. And it finds that you maintain significant flexibility of action up until the moment where you make a choice, a choice to act. We can actually see actions in the brain. We can see you deciding and choosing between actions in the brain. And we can see the flexibility of choice that you maintain. Now, this difference between law and theory as to freedom of action versus freedom of choice, I think it actually is quite compatible across both. If we simply separate what it is that we're talking about, a difference between your preferences and desires over which you may not have control versus action choices. And in law, we punish you for bad actions, not for bad preferences and desires. And so then the question is, how do we take account for preferences and desires that may be outside of your control? That may be things like gray matter, like Kent showed us, that show that people like psychopaths have you know, decreased gray matter in particular regions of their brain. It could be something like the guy who he was talking about out of Virginia, who had the large tumor in his brain and chose to act on, but didn't have control over having the tumor in his brain. So how do we take account for that in law? That's, I think, the interesting struggle that neuroscience presents us with. But it doesn't really change this issue of free will. In fact, we have just as robust of evidence now from neuroscience that supports this concept of action, which is what we punish for in law to begin with. And, and Dr. Keel, would you like to comment on that last? No. No? <laughs> well, I, I guess I'd like to raise an issue, because I think no. when it, theoretically uh, that, that may all be true, but I still think that there's a problem with distinguishing and differentiating those who are uh, compelled to act 
from on their based on their desires than those who are not. And so if you can't define, and it's not just simply defining it in the brain, but it's defining it genetically, environmentally, contextually, you're defining it in terms of uh, time. Uh, if you study their brain today, but they committed the act six months ago or a year ago or 10 years ago, uh, so the legal question ultimately is not theoretically whether we can distinguish preferences from action, but whether we can identify those either before the fact or after the fact that had that inability to control their action. Yeah, but what we do know is that even like the one that Kent presented, the, the pedophile out of Virginia, that the vast majority of people who have a tumor like that, who may have preferences and desires to act on sexual impulses, don't. And while we may not know in any particular case whether a person is actually an automaton, usually we can't. I mean, the law has a pretty bright line. It says, if you have engaged in a wrongful action, there's a very limited defense called the insanity defense, which never works, as most of us know, um, because we don't recognize it. Now, should we recognize it? That's an interesting question, right? Should we have a more robust concept of diminished responsibility in light of understanding that some people have less control over their preferences and desires? Or should we have better sentencing schemes or get rid of incarceration and come up with different models of trying to deal with punishment once we understand people have wrongful actions? I think those are all interesting questions. But is there free will? Well, the fact that almost everybody in the audience raised either their right or left hand, contemplated it, and were quickly able to act and respond, that to me says, yes, there is. Now what do we want to do about it? Now that we understand that those of us in the audience or those of us up here who like chocolate cake may not have control over it, how do we want to account for that, if at all, in the criminal justice system? To date, we haven't. In the future, we may wish to. Well, I agree with that. I think that, well, first of all, the fact that everybody in the audience could control themselves to raise their hands gives me some, gives me some comfort as I walk out the door. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but one, of the th one of the problems with the disconnect that I was alluding to earlier between how science deals with this question, how lawyers deal with this question, is that you actually get a fundamental disconnect between the two systems. So you mentioned that lack of volitional control or lack of ability to control your preferences might lead to insanity. But in fact, in, in most jurisdictions, as of course you know, uh, that's not true. Uh, after Hinckley was acquitted uh, under the American Law Institute test because he could not control his behavior, Congress in most state jurisdictions changed the law got rid of the uh, substantial lack of volitional control test from the old American Law Institute, the AOI test, and now in most jurisdictions, the McNaughton test applies. And the McNaughton test requires that you demonstrate that you can't distinguish right from wrong. So now we have, and again, the law uses science for the law's own purposes, but what is problematic here is that disconnects. So on the criminal side, if you lack volitional control, you go to prison because you can't win under the McNaughton test because the LRI test doesn't apply. When you walk out of prison and you lack volitional control, you get civilly committed. And so what we have is a fundamental uh, disconnect between how we view uh, philosophy of free will and, and, and human control on the criminal side versus the civil side, and not surprisingly, on both sides, quote, the state wins because on the criminal side you go to prison and on the civil side uh, you get incarcerated uh, civilly. I don't think that's much of a disconnect. I think, uh, so I agree with you, the test has changed. That's not what I'm talking about. If you look at the kind of distribution of behavior, 
right? If we think that the people at this high end of the distribution have kind of perfect control of their impulses and perfect control over acting on their preferences. So I like chocolate cake, but it gives me migraines, so I'm tr I try to not actually have it because it tends to trigger it. So maybe I end up over on the normal distribution at the higher end. And at this end, we have people who have complete lack of control over their impulses. What the law currently does is it just draws a bright line. And it says normatively, right, as a matter of who we think we should hold responsible, only people who are at this end of the line are going to be held to not be responsible agents, people who we will not hold accountable for their actions. And we deal with that right now with the insanity defense. Do I think that's perfect? No. Do we maybe want to shift the line a little bit further over on the normal curve as we understand that a great degree more people have difficulty controlling their impulses or controlling their behavior or being able to act in a manner that is consistent with a higher level desire to act responsibly than maybe a lower level desire to act violently. Maybe we want to shift the line, but right now where society has chosen to, dr to draw the line is to be pretty harsh with respect to who we will include as people who are agents of responsibility versus non-agents of responsibility. You know, neuroscience could change that. Once we understand and have a better understanding of human behavior and we recognize that there is uh, a, a much finer gradation that we could draw than this bright line, perhaps we'll shift the line or start over. But it's not all that consistent, well, inconsistent well, with the way we do things. Well, I think it is inconsistent. Uh, Vicki, you wanted to go over the debate. We have to go over the debate. I know. We, I'd like to jump we, in at some I, point. I, okay. But go ahead. Let me just say that we, what we have is two distributions. You have one distribution based on, quote, free will or volitional control, uh, which applies on the civil side and used to apply under the ALI test. Uh, and now we have a new distribution of the, being able to distinguish right from wrong. So now we have two completely dis, uh, different distributions uh, that we're drawing that bright well, line cognitive on. Cognitive versus volitional. And I don't think that, I mean, we can sure. decide that cognitive isn't sufficient, but it is the basis where we draw the line. But Becky, well, I mean, Becca, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, the, so um, Dr. Keel, to get back to the science, do you see how the research that you're doing and this, the, this imaging and identification of areas in the brain that may be part of uh, primarily psychopathy, which we're talking about today, how, does, how would that be used in a courtroom? What's your opinion? Um, well, classically, um, individuals who have those traits, the lack of empathy, guilt, or remorse, those traits tend to predict future recidivism. So um, if you're an offender and you are scored very high on those traits, you have a four to eight times increased risk of reoffending when you're released than if you're an inmate who scores low on those traits. So it's classically been considered as a construct an aggravating or future dangerousness um, issue, and, and it's routinely used in risk assessment. Um, I think that what the literature has done is it's helped us to understand that there are, um, that they're, since their brains are very different, they're very affectively challenged, even if you will, some attorneys have made the argument that, they, that psychopathy constitutes an affective disturbance or something that would be mitigating, for example, in the context of a death penalty sentencing. Mm -hmm. um, I've certainly been asked to testify about whether or not psychopaths have affective deficits, and Absolutely, they have affective deficits. There's been hundreds of years of psychiatric research showing that they do. And so um, you have this two-pronged thing. You have this one hand that they're more dangerous if you release them than it, and if you don't treat them. And on the other hand, they're affectively different. Uh, there was a very nice article in the New York Times Magazine on Mother's Day about children who have these emerging <laughs> traits and how we would develop and understand them and treat them. And um, there, that's a small percentage of individuals and kids, but my, my goal is to try to develop better treatments. 
um, so that they can keep them off that trajectory towards life course persistent problems. Are you saying then that people who have this brain structure that you've identified will always be um, lacking in volitional control or impulsive to the extent that they are criminals? I mean, do we have a subset of people who are just criminals because of their brains? No, I, I, I should really differentiate psychopathy from criminality. I mean, there's a lot of, and you heard today, a lot of reasons why individuals engage in different criminal activity. Individual psychopathy are a very small percentage of of prisoners that are just about 15 to 20 percent depending on security level. Um, those individuals are the ones that present the highest risk for reoffending. Those are the ones that we say have the personality disorders, et cetera. Um, but I actually, there's some amazingly good treatment programs that have been developed, especially with youth, that can show upwards of a 50 percent reduction in violent crime in kids with these traits if you put them in the right type of treatment. And the state of Wisconsin leads the way in this regard, by the way, um, because they, they've invested heavily in these types of treatment programs, and they show these dramatic effects. And that, to me, gives me faith that other states, California hopefully and others, will adopt these very progressive and positive reinforcement kind of model change of behavior treatment programs, and they have the, the power to reduce impulsivity and increase a little bit of empathy that allows that person, when they're released, to not act without thinking or to act less likely to act without thinking, and then to also potentially engage in better, um, you know, general better societal behaviors. Um, and you, we they briefly mentioned mitigation and aggravation. Um, Professor Fagman, could you, could you address the question of how you would use this information, either as aggravation or mitigation, in a potentially a death penalty case? Do you have any opinions about that? Um, well, a couple observations. Uh, first, it's worth noting that in most jurisdictions, the rules of evidence, uh, whether it's the Kelly Fry test in California or the Daubert rule in federal uh, jurisdictions, uh, does not apply at capital sentencing. So many of the questions about uh, how valid the research is and, and how robust it is uh, doesn't necessarily come up because the standards are much lower in, in capital sentencing. Uh, I think it's a huge question. You could have exactly the bra same uh, brain scan uh, on the uh, prosecution side, uh, as Kent pointed out. Uh, these are dangerous people. Uh, they, many of them will say uh, straight up, uh, if you let me go, I'm going to do it again, and I really can't control myself, uh, and that sounds aggravating. Uh, on the other side of it, uh, we are, to some extent, the victims of either our preferences or inability to control our preferences. Uh, we're victims of our environments growing up. Uh, we're victims of our uh, context that, that we live in. Uh, and therefore, we all, um, you know, are not, quote, responsible for that behavior and therefore should be mitigating. And when you look at a lot of the testimony that comes in, whether it's from uh, a mother or from neighbors or from teachers uh, that are talking about really mitigating circumstances, they are the rotten social background uh, kind of arguments, the abuse and, and the suffering that that individual uh, experienced, uh, and those things show up in the brain. Uh, the brain is also a sponge. The, the brain isn't simply uh, created by genetics, and uh, it's very much shaped by environment. And so uh, my mentor, uh, John Monahan, uh, likened the 
problem of predicting violent people to predicting violent storms. Uh, when you think of meteorology and you think of the difficulty of uh, classifying a hurricane and then tracking a hurricane, making judgments about such complex behavior that has sort of chaotic uh, premises underlying it, uh, you're going to make lots of mistakes. Uh, you're going to make lots of mistakes in both directions. Sometimes you're going to make a mistake when you think that the storm's going to hit, uh, and it doesn't, and sometimes you're going to make mistakes where you think the storm's not going to hit, and it does. Uh, and the, I think one of the great challenges, quite frankly, for the legal system is understanding statistics well enough to make that judgment about where you draw that line that Nita was referring to uh, about, you know, you know, where do you want to avoid the errors. You want to avoid the errors if you have, think a Category 5 hurricane is going to hit Miami, but there's only a 40% likelihood that that hurricane is going to hit Miami, do you evacuate the city? Well, if you evacuate the city and it doesn't hit, you spent tons of money and possibly hurt lots of people in doing that. If you don't evacuate the city and the storm hits, uh, then you have uh, many deaths and, and much lost money. And I think it's that statistical judgment that ultimately is the legal judgment that has to be made here. And the best science will never get to that point where it will say, we know with 100% certainty that this person is going to commit another offense or is not going to commit another offense. This is our confidence about that judgment. And now you have to work with that in, in the best way you can. But those are, those are, you know, when I do these education outreach to the federal judges, that's, the, that's their biggest questions. And generally, they want to know, can you help me do any better than my best clinical judgment? And I'm like, yeah, we can. We can help divide, design tests that um, help to predict better than just the average clinician. And they want to know how good can you get. And um, it, it, risk assessments are getting better. I mean, they're, they're getting a lot better. Um, I, I look at risk assessments as a... I've identified the variables that promote risk so that I can develop treatment strategies to reduce those risks. Um, and so if you have somebody that scores very high in psychopathy and has all the other risk factors that would suggest they're going to be an 80% chance of reoffending, you know, in four or five years, you could develop a tiered or strategic release plan that would help to mitigate those risk factors so that that person can be, levels of risk can be brought down. And that's how we, um, we think about risk management. Um, I call it typically risk needs assessment, because once you understand the risks, then you can develop ways of mediating them. And whether or not that's a brain difference or a picture of a scan or whatever it is, your brain changes as you age. I tried to show you that. Um, and that change can be done through a lot, lot of different ways, through education, through learning, through treatment, through talking to people or medicines, all have big impacts on how the brain develops and changes over time. Dr. Farhani, or Professor Farhani? Either one's fine. <laughs> um, but, uh, so my view is that this evidence has not been particularly useful either as aggravation or as mitigation. So I've been doing an empirical study over the past uh, six years now to look at its introduction in criminal cases. Um, and it's equivocal at best. It sometimes ends up being aggravating. Um, but so far it hasn't panned out. Now why hasn't it panned out? Um, in part, it's because the science isn't quite there yet, uh, in that we're able to see some things at a group level, but being able to talk about a single individual, to look at their brain and to understand the extent to which their brain differences contribute to their behavior 
is very challenging. There just isn't enough data for that yet. You can say things at a group-wide level, though. And so Kent's mentioned earlier uh, the case um, out of Florida uh, in the Supreme Court, Graham, in which the court said that juveniles should be treated differently with respect to life without the possibility of parole. The same thing happened in Roper v. Simmons, where the court has treated juveniles differently. And it may be the case that we can start to do that. We can start to categorize people. So in Atkins v. Virginia, we've categorized a group of individuals and said, those people who have mental retardation have lesser culpability for a whole host of reasons, including they're more likely to follow people, they're more likely to um, subject, be subject to peer pressure, less likely to have made premeditated decision-making. That's probably where this evidence is the most useful. So we have a standard in criminal law called the reasonable person standard, this fictitious person that we measure everybody's conduct by. We say, this is the person, um, the average person, the average juror, the average individual, the kind of conduct that we would expect an average member of society to live up to. Well, it just turns out that none of us are quite average, right? And we might actually be much more like people who we share particular brain structures with or people who we shared particular environmental and brain uh, similarities to. And so we might need to start thinking about more particularized notions of conduct based on what we would expect of a person who has that type of a brain structure, who had these types of environmental factors, and then start to think about how we want to treat them. Do we want to hold those people responsible for their actions or less responsible for their actions? Are there certain people who would be better subject to medical treatment instead of incarceration? Are there certain people who we actually think would be better off being in prison than not being in prison? Those types of decisions, I think, are going to be much more useful coming out of the neuroscience, at least in the near term. In the long term, maybe we can get to the point where we can make individualized decision-making with respect to mitigation and aggravation, but so far it hasn't actually panned out. And um, to all of you, do you think that it would be more appropriate to keep this out of the courtroom, for instance, until there's a lot more certainty? Or should we be using it now and run the risk that we're reaching potentially wrong conclusions? I'll, I'll jump in first on that and say um, it's already here. So the idea that we should wait for the science to get better, um, I think, is just uh, it's too late for that. So the cat's already out of the bag. The question is, what do you do now that it's in the courtroom? Well, we have dueling experts. We have judges who are sitting in a gatekeeping role who have to decide whether or not the evidence should be admissible and whether or not it should be permitted in a case. My view is that um, the more evidence that we can provide to a jury or to a judge in their decision-making, some of it objective evidence, some evidence to help bolster things like a diagnosis of schizophrenia or IQ, all the better. Now, at the same time, we need to have the critics in the courtroom explaining the shortcomings of the science so that we don't have false evidence that's introduced or, or undue reliance on science that isn't quite there yet. So my preference is um, recognize it's already there, but make sure that we have robust discussions about the validity of the science before people buy into it too much. Yeah, I would, I would just add that I, I basically agree uh, that it's already in the courtroom. Uh, however, however, I would caution that uh, it's not in the courtroom for all uses. Uh, Justice Breyer in the Kumho Tyre case, which was the third of the Daubert trilogy, which was basically the Supreme Court's weighing in on the question of the admissibility of scientific evidence or expert evidence more generally, 
Justice Breyer referred to making sure that the science works for the task at hand. And this notion of the task at hand, I think, ought not to be forgotten, that neuroscience might work for certain tasks very well and for other tasks not so well. And so I think we have to evaluate it uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. I, I very much agree with Nita's point that uh, a lot of the neuroscience uh, right now works quite well at the group level uh, and has not yet been shown to work particularly well at the, at the individual level. But having said that, I, I think that there is, uh, again, a legal necessity uh, issue that's presented. If you go back to Graham versus Florida, it is true that Justice Kennedy and the Supreme Court, the majority of the court, said that you cannot impose life without parole uh, for a non-manslaughter offense for an adolescent. Uh, and therefore, and he drew the line as he did in Roper versus Simmons, as saying that adolescents are simply different, their brains are different than adults, they're less developmentally mature. But you have to ask, then ask the question, well, what happened to Terrence Graham? Well, Terrence Graham got sentenced. Now, he didn't get sentenced to life without parole, which was the default sentence uh, that he was given that was now unconstitutional. And if you actually read what happened at the sentencing hearing for Terrence Graham, there was, again, doing uh, psychologists, or actually doing psychologists with a psychiatrist, and the state's psychiatrist made the claim that he was suffering from antisocial personality disorder and that, in his view, nobody recovers from antisocial personality disorder and therefore he should be put away virtually for the rest of his life. And the defense expert said uh, there's already been demonstration of his increased maturity uh, and that I do think that he will mature out of it uh, and the brain science supported the defense side of that. Uh, he got 25 years. Uh, that, that was the sentence. So even though I, I very much agree that, that as a constitutional matter, we can draw those bright lines at the group level, in the end, just by necessity, the law has to deal with individuals. Would you agree that the, the judicial system is not really the best place for us to be determining um, whether or not the science behind neuroscience is reliable enough to make judgments? I mean, looking back at things like fingerprints and other tool marks and other sciences, forensic sciences, that came into court and now have been debunked. I mean, isn't there a risk, a huge risk? Well, there is. I, I, I wish that uh, more lawyers uh, knew statistics and research methods. Uh, unfortunately, if you're really good in math, you don't necessarily go to law school. But if you're really good <laughs> in political science or history, uh, you might go to law school, and, and you haven't taken math for a very long time. Uh, I think the reality is uh, that the courts have to get up to speed. That's, that was really the lesson of the Daubert case. Uh, I think it's increasingly becoming the lesson of Kelly Fry as well, is that lawyers, judges, the system more generally has to be able to evaluate uh, the validity of proffered expert testimony. We just can't get around it. Uh, it's in the courtroom. Uh, the problem with latent fingerprints and firearms and handwriting and arson investigation and the list goes on and on, is, as you know better than I, uh, the, the problem is they, those were ne never actually evaluated. Uh, the courts simply either grandfathered it in or never even bothered to look at it. Uh, and I can assure you that the forensic identification sciences, the non-DNA stuff, uh, 
is not brain science. Uh, it doesn't take a, a Kent Keel to look at the uh, scientific methods underlying a lot of the forensic techniques and say uh, that it's mostly junk. Uh, but I do think your, your point is well taken that when you get to genetics and you get to neuroscience and you get to some of the much more complex science, uh, I quite frankly think that law schools need to step up uh, lawyers and judges need to step up uh, to do a better job of understanding it, and that's one of the things Kent does. He goes around lecturing judges uh, on the methodology underlying, underlying his neuroscience. Just one note about uh, this. Um, so a lot of the sciences that you mention are sciences that were developed not through ordinary scientific method of discovery but were really directed by the criminal justice system. So these so-called forensic sciences um, didn't happen from scientists following hypothesis-driven scientific methods and following the scientific method. Um, and neuroscience and DNA are different that way. Now, interestingly, there's a lot of neuroscience collaborations um, that are happening with people outside of the neuroscientific field, and yet it's still neuroscientists who are doing scientific decision-making. So I think the quality of the science is, oh, is different. Absolutely. Um, and as a result, the question of its appropriateness in the courtroom and whether or not we think that it's likely to follow the same fate and path that these so-called other sciences are, I think it's more likely to be like DNA than it is to be like the forensic sciences, which aren't really science to begin with. Um, so I think we can take a little bit of comfort uh, in having it in the courtroom, but also recognizing there's peer-reviewed literature. It's followed the scientific method. We can actually evaluate it in the courtroom, and I completely agree with David that in order to do so, we need to increase the training of lawyers and judges um, and the general public in these fields so that people are able to critically evaluate the type of science that's introduced in a courtroom. Yeah, I, if I could just add very quickly, I absolutely agree with everything that you just said, and, but the one area that you sort of have to keep your eye on is fMRI and lie detection. Uh, there are two companies now in the business of doing fMRI lie detection, and I think that there the, com the commerce is pushing the science a little bit faster than maybe it ought to. Yeah. But, but I agree. The science. The, the science, yes. right, exactly. <laughs> Okay, we have some questions from the audience that I'd like to ask, and um, I think most of these are probably for Dr. Keel, but let's see. Um, first question, how does the brain research impact drug cases when the defendant is an addict? Um, well, so addiction does, obviously, as most of you know, very bad things to the brain, at least it dramatically changes the brain, so that's a... Um, and certain individuals are often, are also very, there's enormous... Um, vulnerabilities and risk factors from genetics to brain structure and function that can precipitate or make it to be easier to get addicted to drugs. Um, and uh, there have been, I think, quite a bit of neuroscience um, focusing on trying to develop better treatments for individuals by understanding the mechanism of those changes. Um, in the courtroom, uh, you know, I believe that, you know, to help judges, judges when we do the education, one of my collaborators who does this work teaches them all about how the brain changes with addiction, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that might be very helpful for judges when it comes to sentencing someone to like drug courts for an addiction problem versus um, you know, prison for long periods of time. That is, if their primary problem really is a, one of addiction, then treatment and remediation of that and then the subsequent you know, behavioral problems and other things is a, probably far more cost effective and good thing for that person, then just simply send same time to, to prison time. Um, and so I think the neuroscience helps to educate um, and change our way that we understand uh, you know, drugs and drug addiction. Okay. And the, another question is, have you ever been allowed to testify 
regarding um, IQ in a, a hearing or a trial using your program? Yeah, so I just did that this weekend. So um, I haven't testified this morning. Um, I do know that, so the, the Atkins case was actually argued by a professor at the University of New Mexico, and he's constantly barraged by what's the best way to assess IQ, especially when you have these different tests and different measures, et cetera. And IQ is one of the most well-studied things in psychology. Um, so taking a brain scan and fitting your brain along a dimension and then getting a, an ev a value is just a slightly different way of doing it than giving you the tests and stuff like that. So I have not uh, obviously testified to anything like that. I just tried to do that as an example. There is an enormous literature out there that's already been peer-reviewed and published on the brain correlates of IQ. There's, there's dozens of papers. The big question, which Anita uh, and David is working on this as well, uh, alluded to is that how well can I take a single person's brain scan and with what confidence can I get a number associated with it that we would derive an IQ. Um, and those measures and ways that we do that get better every, every month, basically. Every year, we're getting more and more and more accurate at taking a single piece of information or complex piece of information and fitting it. Um, to my knowledge, it hasn't been done. I am aware that there are patents on estimating IQ um, using spectroscopic brain imaging, which is a measure of metabolites in the brain. Um, but uh, I haven't actually, I'm not aware of any cases in which it's been used. But there's no reason why it couldn't be. Yeah, I mean, the way it's, it, it's been, it, nothing, as you've described, but the algorithms to actually map it have been used. But um, in IQ cases, brain imaging has been used to try to bolster a claim of lower IQ, not by an algorithm, but by trying to show brain abnormalities and differences that would be consistent with the diagnosis of mental retardation or of lower IQ. Yeah, I would just add to that. Uh, this is actually an area that uh, partnerships between lawyers and scientists uh, could really make a difference. Uh, I teach constitutional law, and the question I ask is, why is low IQ an excusing condition from the death penalty? And if you go back to Atkins and, and you read the opinion, uh, it's on the basis of an Eighth Amendment analysis of the twin pillars of the criminal law, which are retribution and deterrence, and the court makes the judgment that low IQ means that you're less responsible and you're less likely to be able to be deterred, and so the twin pillars of the criminal law don't really apply. But I'm not sure that the psychologists who do psychological testing in IQ or the neuroscientists have really connected up the constitutional reasons why, because it may be that there are substructures of IQ that are more relevant to the Eighth Amendment question. It's not a general IQ score that's ultimately relevant. And in fact, the California Supreme Court has dealt with exactly that question of, you know, what subscales might be uh, constitutionally relevant rather than the global IQ score. Um, and, and one question here, which I think is very interesting. Um, in my community, we strongly feel that diet plays a strong diagnosis of the violence we see, the intake of sugar, which is heavily consumed as a factor. What is your take on that? Uh, well, diet certainly plays a role in controlling and, and behavior, and, and so that, um, you know, there's, there's, I'm not that familiar with all the different science associated with different dietary restrictions and other types of things. You can certainly um, reduce the incidence of aggression in animal models and other types of things by putting them on different diets. You can certainly make animals more likely to, uh, you know, by experimentally changing diets, more likely to be aggressive, for example. Um, I, I have a sister who's a nutritionist just around the corner here, and so she would have 
kill me if I didn't tell you that you should eat right, you know? Um, <laughs> but um, that being said, I, I do believe that, that uh, deficits in certain, you know, essential amino acids and other types of things can certainly increase people's impulsivity. They can increase people's, um, you know, chances of not uh, uh, those types of things. So, yeah. And um, one final question, and I'm going to rephrase it a little bit, but why is it that we treat people who have, say, traumatic brain injuries or uh, other diagnosed mental illnesses in the criminal justice system rather than in the mental health system? I mean. So I, um, so what I showed you today was to give you that exact what is neuroscience doing in the legal system. And so the picture of the person with the tumor, you could all see that, and, and so can a radiologist. But the analysis that we do now of those images, no radiologist can just see by looking at them. But we are so sensitive to individual differences in IQ, in age, and all these different variables, psychopathy scores, whatever it is, we can develop beautiful pictures of these things. And so the question is, how is the legal system going to deal with all of these different, um, you know, images and other types of things that we can now tell you about your brain? And then how is that going to change things? So I tend to view, um, you know, individuals who have brain differences for whatever reason um, worthy of developing better treatments for them that can help to remediate those problems. As psychologists, we study abnormal behavior. So Nita shows you this distribution. Most of us are in here. But if you get anybody out here who's too, like, externalizing or anyone out here who's too internalizing, as psychologists, we try to bring them back in here so they're more healthy. And so that's, that's what we study. We try to figure out when you're out there and having problems in your life or any other area, if we can do something, a talking to you versus talk therapy or a medicine that might help you, what we're trying to do is get everybody back here so we're just kind of more balanced. Um, and with respect to the um, traumatic brain injuries and other types of things, well, that's much simpler for people to kind of understand that you had a concussive event or you had a TBI, a traumatic brain injury, um, it's caused problems. And we should be developing ways of, of helping to manage and treat those problems just like we do individuals who have um, the other types of problems. Let me just add one thing there, which is this is um, it, it's a good question, but it, it highlights one of the challenges of introducing neuroscience today in the courtroom. As Kent showed you with some of his slides and, and mentioned during his talk, He's trying to develop treatments as he develops abilities to diagnose psychopathy. Um, but that's what comes first, is the diagnosis. And if that's what's introduced first before there are any treatments available, which is the status of much of the neuroscience today, um, then there isn't a treatment that's available. And so uh, part of the problem today is it tends to serve as an aggravating factor because you can't say, well, here's a simple way to fix that thing that we've identified. In the few cases where uh, defendants have been able to show that they've been successfully treated, like, for example, if they were unaware that they had intermittent explosive disorder and it could be treated with uh, an antidepressant, an SSRI, because of um, their low serotonin levels, for example, and they show that their behavior has changed since they've been in prison awaiting trial or, you know, after they were convicted but now um, appealing a death sentence. Uh, in those cases, it's had more traction. And so it makes sense to say we should really focus on treatment, but it's a cautionary tale, which is if it's introduced before treatment is available, how are juries likely to receive that information? They're likely to receive it as a person saying, I am somebody who is programmed to be violent, and there is no solution for my particular ailment. So, um, you know, there's a disconnect in the neuroscience given the timing. So I would just 
comment and say that I, I think we do have pretty decent treatments for remediating even some of the most intractable individuals. They're not used around the world, et cetera, and many countries take individuals who have done very bad things as youth and have developed management and treatment strategies that keep them from, you know, reoffending it when they're out in the community. They're much more uh, managerial. There's much more supervision um, than we typically get in the United States, but it's usually much more cost-effective to manage them outside of a facility with high scrutiny than it is to incarcerate. I mean, as you probably know, California spends about eight times as much money for every inmate as it does for every student at the University of California system. And so you could reorganize those resources and put them more towards, you know, supervision and other types of things and manage a lot of those uh, individuals who are currently incarcerated in in a much more um, effective way that's going to save you tax dollars but also reduce the chances that they'll continue to spiral into those, like the stories we heard earlier today. Right. If if I I could just add one quick thought, that that really ties together the first panel and this panel, and it's a question of resource allocation, and I think Nita's point needs to be taken quite seriously, especially with adolescents. If you get the diagnosis and the community is not ready to step up and do the interventions that are more humane, then the inhumane alternatives might end up costing more but being the easy political solution. Sure. And I think we're out of time, so I'd like to thank Um, everyone on the panel for their time. Thank you kindly. Uh, As an ex-felon, it's not my first effort with a public defender in public. Uh, For a bunch of people who I I know are working hard to make this uh, substance abuse, incarceration, cognitive behavior thing all work together. I started doing my career in jails and rehabs and shelters and other places I've lived. And uh, it's a privilege to work for people who chose to be the audience. (laughs) Oddly enough, they don't get that in the jails and prisons as a joke, really. They don't. uh, uh, I've been sober 23 years and incarcerated in a lot of the 80s. uh, Oh, thanks. uh, Listen, I I hope someday we reach a, a point where that's not necessary to applaud for. I really do. Uh, 23 years sober means that I've run out of excuses to misbehave. Uh, that's all it means. I'm criminal by nature. I'm chemically challenged by genetic design. I'm clean and sober by choice. I'm a comedian by trade. And uh, I love the effort that it takes to make this uh, disease, alcoholism, addiction, codependency, that trifecta of dysfunction that comes from a family source uh, that's really nothing to make fun of. Uh, I make a living doing humor about a disease that kills more people than car accidents, cancer, and war combined. Over 92% of incarcerated individuals have a drug and alcohol history or some kind of thread in their family. I'm one of those kids. Oldest of five kids in a very dysfunctional family. ADD in our house stood for all different dads. And uh, <laughs> Normal people don't laugh at that at all. They don't laugh at that at all. I I get a huge response from that from the people who are the affected, the afflicted, the convicted part. There are two groups of people here today, and it's not black or white or he or she or gay or straight or tall or short or smart or otherwise. This disease, alcoholism, drug addiction, substance abuse in particular, could care less how you entered it. Finance, romance, circumstance, ambulance. It doesn't care how you got here. The two groups of people I address every time I go to work are normal people and the rest of us. Normal people don't giggle right there. Normal people always go, oh, there's another group. Welcome. How y'all doing? 
The rest of us go, <laughs> that's us right there. Now, if you're wondering which group you're in, you're normal. Because the rest of us have known for a lot of years, not normal. Normal means most. Most people don't drink and drive because it's illegal. They wear a seatbelt because it's safe. They don't slap their kid and tell them that that's because they love them and that's the way we show them. Okay, there might be three groups of people in this room. Normal, the rest of us, and not getting any better anytime soon. So the threat here is lessened. The shame is removed. The stigma is replaced we go from dope to hope here at some point. We go from drinking and sinking, and lying and dying, to staying and playing and praying and living and giving. That's what we get to do. I'm a, a, an incarcerated guy. Incarceration was not the same as rehabilitation for me. It just wasn't the same. But I've been to over 500 jails or prisons in 23 years, and I speak nine languages now. They're, they're all English, but I, I, I speak Fortune 500. I speak corporate. I speak kid. I have a five-year-old. He's safe all day in the home that I've created, not the one I grew up in. My wife is an afflicted, convicted lady. She actually did more jail time than I did, so she has seniority at home. But <laughs> normal people don't laugh right there at all. <laughs> well, don't the wives always have seniority? Yeah, especially in the penal system. But that was a double-edged sword there. I hope you got it. Some of your pot smokers or ex-pot smokers, the jokes won't kick in for a long time. Marijuana. Marijuana retards the ha-ha muscle. Three months from now, somebody in this room will go, all different dads. That was, ha-ha. Sorry, Your Honor. I apologize. I wasn't laughing at you. Right? The, the concept here of humor as a basis for approaching a topic that's awkward to discuss has never been a mystery to us. The art of that is sometimes awkward especially on a public level, because there's a, there's a risk. God bless uh, Jeff, who took a risk. I called him on Friday. I heard a radio ad, and I said, hey, I can help on Tuesday. I love what I get to do now. I work for everybody I choose to. I turn down more work for speaking and comedy than more people in those industries get asked to do in a year. But I'm, I'm designed to do this. Trauma, drama, afflicted, addicted mama, that all leads to a shield for a sense of humor that provides balance in unfairness. I've just made a living doing it because it allowed me to keep on living doing it. My dad would crush you at our house so hard that you'd black out. And then he was offended you couldn't stick around for the full beating. I'm not the dad I had. My son is not the boy I was. Because people like you have allowed me to become the man I am. He gets to be the child of God. He wants to be. Now, just saying that in public, child of God, somebody's going to write an email. Oh, ch separation, church and state, God bless you. You didn't hire me. Shut up. <laughs> That's a joke. Let it go. The big deal today from Jeff was he goes, just try not to get the city sued when you're done. Just, to, just do that. That was, that was the big folks. I don't care if they laugh. I just don't want to deal with all the paperwork. Humor has a way of highlighting hurt, illuminating illness. It does that on its own. Comedy has a way of pointing out where we're fractured or brittle or inflexible or intolerant. Comedy does that. So today, during the 12 minutes I'm up here, if you don't laugh, it's not because I wasn't funny. It's because you are broken <laughs> somewhere. 
That happens all over the planet. My disease, this cognitive behavior thing you talked about this morning, or lessening the, the felony conviction to a misdemeanor, possession thing, that's all good. But the addicts that you deal with, the criminals, addicted criminals, a little redundant anyway. You know? Addicted criminals like saying intelligent criminal. I always tell the incarcerated population, hey, criminal doesn't mean wrong. Criminal means caught. <laughs> they laugh hard at that right there because they know they got caught. And then I'll remind them that if you have a sense of humor, it balances unfairness. And if life was fair, this is for the normal people. I'll do one for the normal people and one for the rest of us. You'll know which group you're in right now because the vocabulary you use. Normal people hear the word tweak. It means enhance something. Normal people see DOC, it's short for document. <laughs> Not Department of Corrections or Drug of Choice, which go together at some point. Normal people don't have silverware drawer at their home where all the spoons are burned on the bottom. They just don't, they don't even know why that's funny right now. They don't. They burn spoons, for goodness sake. Don't they have pots and pans to cook their food? They must eat small portions of top ramen. Yeah, if that. If life was fair, teachers in this country would get paid a million bucks a year and professional athletes would work for tips. If life, was, if life was fair, children wouldn't be born HIV positive or missing limbs, and they'd all have the same advantage economically, socially, parentally. If life was fair, I wouldn't visit a prison on Sunday afternoon and talk to a general population of five or 600 and walk through the lobby and see children waiting to go through the metal detector and look in their faces, and they are already used to it. That's a felony. It's no big deal for a six-year-old to walk through a metal detector to visit their parents. That has to stop. Now, for the normal people, if life was fair, your property would still be worth what it was four years ago. <laughs> That's one of the rest of us clapping. My landlord, screw him, we don't care. <laughs> for the rest of us, if life was fair, when the cops tossed your apartment serving the warrant, they'd put everything back exactly where it was before they got there. Now you know which group you're in, right? This disease doesn't care. It's more open-minded than people who have it. A lot of times when one of us makes the ultimate mistake, we forget who we are and how we think for five seconds, and it costs someone else the rest of their life. This disease kills people who don't even have it. It's so open-minded, it says, come on. Addicted, afflicted, convicted community. Recidivism? Yeah, why wouldn't we do that growing up in the houses we did? I'm not making an excuse. I'm telling you that's how it starts. But my disease has nothing to do with heroin, which was comforting, or marijuana, which was artificial intelligence at some point, or cocaine, which was necessary if you had a job in the 80s, but <laughs> alcohol, which put out the flame of shame for a five-year-old abused boy. Why wouldn't I drink? Well... Those substances are gone, but I realized at some point this disease is not about substance abuse. It's about ab abuse of substance. I was given substance as a very, very small kid to develop. So I'll tell the incarcerated people, if you get out of here and never come back to a place like this and don't tell the young people how to never go to a place like this, you're still a thief. I owe people. That's why I go to talk to people. But my disease is first thought wrong. First thought guaranteed, wrong, made that way was I. First thought wrong, inappropriate, impolite, incorrect, criminal, cruel, self-centered, abusive, petty, injurious, angry, poor, poor sleep. First thought wrong, absolutely. 
First thought, wrong. 12 minutes? That's what I get, Jeff? 12? Second thought was, I'll take two and make a difference. First thought, wrong. Sometimes second thought, wronger. Sometimes it takes me 15 minutes to get to a healthy thought. Sometimes longer. Sometimes four days of long, wrong, and strong. I went through TSA recently in San Jose, where I live. I live in San Jose. Now, I was born and raised in Oakland, uh, San Leandro High School grad. I went to jail in Livermore. Here's the part. Normal people don't laugh right there at jail in Livermore. I work there. God bless you if you work there. I couldn't do that job for two days in a row. I can do it for an hour and be a nice guy. I can be an ex-felon who's become an extraordinary father. I can become an ex-drunk who's an exceptional citizen. There's a transition necessary for a convicted, afflicted person. And it involves payback. I owe, so I go. But I'll tell the incarcerated, hey, if life was fair, you wouldn't be in here right now. You'd have parents that cared and, and gave you the roadmap to success, and they stuck around. Or they didn't hurt you on the way. And they go, yeah. If life was fair, you wouldn't have been busted when your partner wasn't. Yeah! They love that one a lot. <laughs> and then I'll say this. Well, if they locked you up for everything you really did do criminally, when would you get out? <laughs> they don't like that one at all. So I'm blessed to be here for a brief period of time this afternoon. And I'll tell you this, the first thought wrong is my problem. I was flying out of San Jose Airport, which I do about 200 times a year, and I know everybody there. I've been flying out of there 15 years, and the TSA guy was new. He was new, and new people hop. They don't stand still, new people. I don't care if it's a Starbucks employee, which I love Starbucks! I make my coffee like fudge. You have coffee with me in the morning, it's like, here, you want a piece? Well, that's good, isn't it? Wow. Normal people drink decaffeinated coffee. What the f... No. Decaffeinated coffee? That's like a hooker who won't do it. You can't call it that anymore, right? Normal people don't clap for that, sir. My first thought's wrong right now. I can't even share it with you. That's how wrong it is. I'm going to move on to the show I wrote. So I'm going through security at TSA, and the new guy, they hop. Grizzled, chiseled veteran, a CO, a hotel desk employee, a politician. They go like this. Economy of movement, that's their deal. Traffic cop. You've been on the force a long time. New guy. The old veteran's going, dude, you'll wear out. It'll take about two years. You'll want to retire. That's what happens. <laughs> so this TSA kid, he's new. He goes like this. It's my turn to come through the metal detector. He's doing this. My first thought is, that's nah, a little overdone. <laughs> this works. That's fine. So I come through, and I'm giggling. First thought, wrong. <laughs> it's quarter to six in the morning. I go, <laughs> he goes, something funny? I go, yeah, but I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> he said, you've been selected for special screening. I said, I've been chosen! <laughs> you ever watch a homophobe's eyes just roll back into his skull? That mental reset of the computer, just blink. I need a male assist on two, please. Male assist on two. He's afraid to touch me. See, I don't care. This disease doesn't care. The criminal justice system doesn't care. G.O.D. doesn't care. Heterosexual, you're perfect. Homosexual, you're perfect. Bisexual, you're greedy. Make a choice. Quit being so... 
obvious about all sides. Life's a buffet for you every day, isn't it? I'll take one of him, two of her, and all that big fella. Come on! Barbecue my house. Salad in the backyard. Let's go! So I step over to the special screening area, and the kid comes over because the senior security guy said, you go frisk him, and he went. First thought wrong, I know I have leverage here. Humor will make awkward turn into experience. Now, the danger is humor is a big hammer. I'm not funny all day. Because at some point, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's the wrong tool for the right way to do something. So I try to balance it. But I was out of sorts, hadn't had my coffee, I was a little tired. He comes over and he goes, I have to give you a special pat down using the back of my hand. I said, use all 10 fingers, I'll buy you breakfast. <laughs> I need security to two, please. Security on two, check, checkpoint two, security two. I survived the situation, got on the plane. The point is this, that uh, what's in my head, I've never had to apologize for. First thought wrong, properly filtered with some kind of rehabilitation or education or some kind of patience on the part of a CO or a PD or a DA helps first thought wrong become next right thing. You can do it. I can teach the incarcerated population what to want because they always got what they wanted. They wanted more, they got more. They wanted it, they got it. They wanted some, they got some. They wanted none, they left with none. They wanted her or him, they got that. I can tell them what to want now. Past first thought wrong. What to want. And if they do the right work, I can show them how to keep it this time. My boy's safe all day. It's not because of me. It's because of efforts like this. As our panelists uh, take the stage and get seated, let me introduce our uh, discussion. Earlier this year, California State Senator Mark Leno introduced legislation that would revise the penalty for simple drug possession under the state law, uh, making drug possession laws uh, that punish as a felony would now be punished as a misdemeanor. The new legislation, SB 1506, does not apply to anyone involved in selling or manufacturing drugs. The stated purpose of the bill is that it would help alleviate overcrowding in state prisons and county jails and uh, ease pressure on California's court system and result in millions of dollars in annual savings for both state and local governments. Senator Mark Leno, who couldn't join us today, has been quoted as saying, Quote, there is no evidence to suggest that long prison sentences deter or limit people from abusing drugs. In fact, time behind bars and felony records often have horrible unintended consequences for people trying to overcome addiction because they are unlikely to receive drug treatment in prison and have few job prospects and educational opportunities when they leave. This legislation will help implement public safety realignment and protect our communities by reserving prison and jail space for more serious offenders. Commenting on the fact that 13 other states have already moved in this direction, Senator Leno has said, quote, in fact, 
the experience of these other states when treating drug possession as a health issue has resulted in better public safety outcomes which can result in safer communities. George, uh, why don't we start with you? you you're um, dedicated most of your adult life to fighting crime and to trying to make communities safer. As the elected district attorney of San Francisco, you've committed yourself to that, and yet you've broken away from the position held by, I believe, every other elected district attorney in California to support uh, Mark Leno's measure. Why is that? Thanks, Matt. And yes, and before I go on, I want to uh, thank uh, Marty Brownicar for being here. Even though we disagree, I think it was really important to have uh, a, 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 the point of view of the 57 other uh, elected DAs in the state. Uh, I think it's important to understand in our dialogue. So, Marty, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, George. Also, as someone, Marty, someone that I respect a great deal, he has been involved in public safety for many years and doing. Uh, very honorably uh, serving the L.A. City Attorney as well as uh, in his current position. Uh, actually, for me, this has been a journey. This is not like, you know, the light switch went on yesterday. Uh, I have been involved in, in, in public safety for about 30 years. Uh, I have seen the war on drugs from the ground up. I have seen it uh, as a police officer, a young police officer, walking footbeats in South Central and East LA. I saw the revolving door, uh, the impact that that revolving door was having in many communities. Um, and as I rose through the ranks, I began to take a very different look at the way that we dealt with crime and we dealt with public safety. And as I evolved throughout the years, uh, I came uh, to the conclusion that what we had been doing uh, with the war on drugs was leading us in the wrong direction. Uh, the impact that it had, in, in not only in community callers, but quite frankly on our entire community, uh, was creating a situation that doesn't necessarily make us any safer. Um, and, and frankly, I think that we have criminalized uh, an area that should be really looked upon as a health issue more than as a criminal issue. And I think consequently, uh, a lot of the, the solutions that we have tried in the last two, two and a half decades uh, have taken us to a place where today we cannot afford it economically. I can tell you that socially uh, we have been broken for many years, uh, but now uh, the economic piece of it has come to play, and that's probably why, quite frankly, we're reacting. I think often we can deal with uh, being socially bankrupt much easier than we can deal with being economically bankrupt. And I think that now we have... Uh, come to the point where uh, there's an intersection between the two. Having said that, I think it's also important to recognize that simply taking people that are broken, because most of the people that are, have drug addictions are people that are broken, uh, and just simply releasing them onto the streets or lowering the, 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 the level of penalty without having a, a services uh, that recognize that those people need a lot of help and that we have to be there in order to support them, it's not necessarily good policy either, and I think that that could also create some serious problems for us. I am supporting 1506 because I believe that it starts to take us in the right direction. I don't believe that 1506 is necessarily the destination. I see 1506 as the beginning of a journey uh, that we all have to embark together when we start looking at drug addiction and the impact of drug use as more of a health issue uh, than, than as, a, that as a criminal issue. Having said that, I recognize that we're not there yet, and there is a lot of work that needs to be done. I believe that 1506 
begins to take us in that direction. That's why I'm supporting and that's why I'm here today. Mr. Nadelman, I'm, I'm wondering if you, if, you might, uh, if you might be able to place this in a larger context for us. You heard uh, George Gascon's remarks. Uh, are they shared by folks in other states that have moved towards a similar type measure? Well, there are a growing, small but growing number of other district attorneys around the country. Uh, in Albany County, New York, in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, Dallas, who are really beginning to break ranks with the broader DA's associations and call for, uh, call for various types of reforms to the drug laws and drug enforcement. I, I think that the, uh, uh, one of the contexts that's so important here and that people so often lose sight of is that this bill, 1506, is a small effort in the state of California and a broader country the United States to try to roll back the horrendous rates of incarceration that have happened in this country over the last 30 years. I mean, that's the context, right? The United States, I think most of you know these numbers now, but we're, we're five, less than 5% of the world's population, but almost 25% of the world's incarcerated population. We rank first in the world in the per capita incarceration of our fellow citizens. I mean, the Russians are fading fast into second or third place together with the Belarusians, right? Um, you know, our rates of incarceration are five, six, seven, eight times those in most other societies, Europe and elsewhere, even though their rates of nonviolent crime and illicit drug use are not that much different than ours. So if another country were to lock up its own people at the rate that we do, and if our rates of incarceration were more normative to the rest of the world, we would regard what that other country was doing as a massive violation of human rights. That's the way we would look at it. Now, the other point here is what we're doing is not even consistent with American history. I mean, we only had, we had 500,000 people behind bars in 1980. Now we have 2.3, 2.4 million people behind bars. We almost have 500,000 people today behind bars just for a drug law violation. As many people behind bars today for a drug law violation as we had for everything in 1980. So it's not consistent with global standards. It's not consistent with our own history. It's costing a vast amount of money. And I think what you see is for some of the DAs and others are beginning to say enough is enough. We're seeing prison populations beginning to decline, but when it comes down to the question, who are the first people we should stop putting behind bars? Who's the people who really don't belong there? It's people whose only offense is possession of a substance to put in their own body, right? That's the first group that need to be let out. Marty, let me ask you, uh, um, you know, you're obviously a part of the California District Attorneys Association. Association. Uh, as we were talking before the panel began, uh, you shared with me that your organization has previously supported a measure that Mark Leno brought forward to uh, lower the punishment for possession of less than an ounce of marijuana from a misdemeanor to an infraction. Uh, in this case, your organization is uh, staunchly opposed to it. Uh, what, what do you say to Mr. Nadelman and to Mr. Gascon? Well, I think uh, one of the things that I want to point out is in terms of uh, the changes that are currently taking place in California's criminal justice system is we have embarked on a very, very large experiment, and that's called uh, uh, realignment. Uh, 
prison population in California is, is going to approach by early, sometime next year the federal uh, mandate of 130,000. We've already released uh, some 50,000 individuals uh, uh, to, to serve their time locally. And these offenses that we were talking about here uh, are currently in the list of offenses that were to be served uh, in county jails now. And if the notion here is to provide services and treatment to these individuals from a practical point of view, and I lean heavily on my experience as a misdemeanor prosecutor for all those years when we, when we did uh, possession offenses, when we uh, tried many, many under the influence uh, offenses, especially heroin, I don't see that under the current system that reducing these penalties from felony to misdemeanor is going to have any incentive for this population to obtain treatment. I also uh, do not agree that under this measure that locally there will be additional monies available for treatment. I noticed in the uh, list of supporters for Senator Leno's uh, measure, it's heavily uh, supported by people in the treatment community. I think that that's great because we all understand that treatment does work. Treatment in these forms of addiction will help these people get on track because they are broken. I think that there's a general understanding among the prosecution community that that is the case, that treatment is the goal. But in my mind and in the minds of uh, the majority of the DAs around the state, the current state of misdemeanors with our county jails being overcrowded, no person sentenced to a misdemeanor offense is going to do any jail time whatsoever. If they don't have jail as an incentive to engage in treatment, then there's nothing there other than their own will to finally do something about their addiction. Marty, let me ask you just as a follow-up. Um, what do you say then that the only thing, if you're saying that currently being charged with a felony is going to result in uh, drug treatment or maybe uh, a sentence that isn't going to send someone to state prison, what do you say to someone that says, well, what, what do you do with the felony conviction? You're making a lot of felons out of people who are committing simple drug offenses. I think probably that if you were to, to look at a lot of um, individuals who, uh, who end up getting convicted of possession, uh, the arrest charge was probably uh, either possession for sales or a sales case, and the individual uh, took a deal for simple possession. I think that you still have uh, the majority of those individuals who were incarcerated in state prison for possession either had, had strike priors, uh, serious offenses, or they had pled down to, uh, from a sales case. Uh, Tal, let me ask you perhaps to respond to, to Marty's point. Uh, you're a deputy public defender here in San Francisco. You've handled hundreds of drug cases, drug possession cases. Uh, you've been, uh, uh, a lot of people caught their attention when you were quoted in the press saying that the way we handle drug enforcement 
uh, here in California is, is in, in effect a war on crumbs instead of uh, the, the often used phrase war on drugs. How do you, how do you respond to his remarks? Well, I think um, the first thing that we have to recognize is that um, the majority of people who are caught up in the criminal justice system and who are prosecuted for this type of offense, for possession offenses, and to some degree possession for sale offenses, the majority, vast majority are indigent people. And the vast majority of those indigent people uh, are people of color. And so what you have is you have two systems in place. You have a system where privileged, white, middle-class people basically use drugs, uh, college campuses, uh, frat parties, uh, nightclubs. They use drugs with impunity. They don't have to worry about being caught. And then you have a system that comes down like a ton of bricks on indigent poor people. And that's one of the reasons why I think um, this type of reform is a positive first step. Because if you are going to make drug possession illegal, at least make it a misdemeanor and not a felony, at least don't stigmatize and label an entire population of people with, as, as felons and prevent them from getting housing, getting education. So, so I guess the point is it, it, it's a question of fairness. You know, it's like we shouldn't have two systems, one where uh, based on your race or your class, you can access treatment and move on with your life. And another one where because of law enforcement tactics and uh, focus, you end up caught up in a system where you can never move on. You're permanently trapped. You're permanently weighed down uh, by having a felony conviction. The reason I call it a war on crumbs is because of the types of people that we see uh, at the Hall of Justice. I brought with me some props. I brought with me a, a sweetener packet, okay? This is a gram of sweetener. Most of the time, this is on the high end of the amount of narcotics that we see people in possession of. Sometimes people have two or three sweetener packages on them, and we call them drug dealers. You know, that's, that's why we call it a war on crumbs, because the amounts that we're talking about are minuscule. And the fact that you can have a felony conviction on your record and all of those disabilities for the rest of your life based on that felony conviction, based on possession of less than a packet of, of sweetener, to me, that's outrageous, you know. And this is a positive first step, um, in my opinion, because at least you remove some of the stigma that's attached to uh, this type of issue, which, in my opinion, should be a public health issue. It's a public health issue for a certain segment of the community. It should be a public health community uh, issue for everybody. Tal, let me... Tal, let me follow up and just say, it, you know, opponents of Mark Leno's measure would say that it's not the amount of drug that somebody is in possession of. The fact that they're using drugs indicates that they've got to find a way to supply themselves with ongoing, you know, sources of uh, drugs, or uh, by taking the drugs, they're going to place themselves in a state that makes them more, uh, more likely to commit crime. Is this a valid uh, argument? Well, I think there are, I mean, I think the, the elephant in the room is that not everybody who uses drugs is a drug addict. And there's a segment of the population that recreationally uses narcotics, and they don't necessarily need treatment, and they certainly don't need a felony conviction. That having been said, um, if you are an addict, it doesn't make any sense to turn you into a felon addict. I mean, we just heard that 
person uh, before very eloquently talk about spending most of his life incarcerated, um, and he's made it. But the fact of the matter is the encumbrance of a felony conviction is so debilitating. You, you know, countless times you run into people who can't get jobs, can't get housing, can't get education, so it's a trap. So if we are really going to deal with addiction, it makes no sense to turn an addict into a felon. Chief Still. Chief Still, you've been uh, committed to evidence-based practices in your uh, administration of the Adult Probation Department. Uh, to what extent does that inform your approach when you look at uh, Senator Leno's measure and deciding whether or not to support it? My view is not only from evidence-based practices, but it also from spending almost 30 years working in the California prison system, managing prisons, working in prisons, performing oversight. And what I know and what I can definitively say after 30 years is that prison, prison does not address nor change behavior. Um, in fact, it actually, for those that do have addictions and illnesses, in fact, it actually makes them worse. Um, it's like sending individuals that have a sickness to a criminal camp. You know, they learn how to be better criminals, but they still don't get their addiction addressed. And the research out there tells us that incapacitation, period, does not change behavior. It also tells us that basically what changes behavior is approximately about 200 hours of dose-intensive treatment, and you do not have to go to prisoner jail in order to get those services. But yet we're spending $56,000 a year and, in fact, uh, overcrowded our prisons so much that the Supreme Court had to weigh in, basically, and put a cap on the state prison system, which they're still, their plan, they're working towards it, but they're not getting there. Realignment took us uh, in a good direction in terms of trying to reduce the population that's going to state prison. But I think what 1506 does is it takes that next step to say we really need to look at as a criminal justice system, you know, what we're doing, who we're sending to prison or to jail, and what we're spending our money on. And evidence-based practices tells us that the majority of these individuals, they need treatment and they need intensive treatment, and it's more cost-effective and provides a better return on investment to the taxpayers to provide intensive services, as well as then it reduces victimization because you don't have addicts out there stealing to support their habit and those other subsequent crimes. And in addition to that, dealing with the addiction breaks the cycle of crime and breaks that intergenerational cycle that exists. You know, looking in prisons and managing them I've seen generations of families come through the system, and it's because their behavior, their addictions have not been appropriately dealt with. And we researched, we spent millions of dollars in the prison system researching substance abuse treatment. And what we know and what we, the research told us was the fact that it wasn't putting somebody in prison and it wasn't the amount of treatment in prison or jail that changed the behavior. It was the treatment out in the community after that individual was released and had to deal with life stressors. And so what evidence-based practices tells us is that there is a more effective way to where we can get a better return on our investment. Uh, 1506 is one of those strategies, and it also reduces victimization and breaks the cycle of crime so we don't have the next generation coming into the, the system. Wendy, let me ask you this. 
it seems that over the years there's been a acceptance that somebody could be on probation and perhaps get caught when they give, let's say, a urine test or whatever is the, you know, uh, requirement of their probation with, let's say, a dirty test, uh, testing positive for marijuana. And slowly over the years, it seems like the probation department gave that less importance. There was a time when that would have been treated as a violation. Over time, it hasn't been treated as a very serious violation. Tal raised the issue about responsible drug use. And when we get into the area of heroin or cocaine or other drugs, are you seeing that there are some probationers that can, in fact, use these substances in a recreational manner and still be otherwise law-abiding? Well, first I'll say, as an officer of the court, my job is to, of course, um, enforce the law. But with that said, I think what probation has realized, and just not San Francisco probation, although I think we're a very progressive leader, is the fact that there are underlying problems that is causing the drug usage. There is trauma that's out there. People talk about rehabilitating, but in reality, for the majority of, of our clients, you know, they haven't been habilitated in the first place. You know, the, the circumstances in which they grew up, the lack of parenting, the lack of role modeling. We talk about, you know, being disadvantaged, which I completely agree with. All you have to do is take a look at the demographics of our adult probation population. Sixty percent are African-American. And, you know, that begins to tell the story. And so while our job is responsible for certainly um, holding the clients in compliance with their term and condition, which, you know, no drug usage would be one of them. We also recognize that you have to deal with the underlying problem, just not lock people up, because that's not going to deal with the problem and it's not going to change the behavior. And I think that's what, that's what we've learned to focus on, is what can we do, what kind of intervention to create a strength-based approach to where we're providing rewards also when someone is doing good and recognizing their progress, not just just sanctioning them when, in fact, they relapse, because relapse is a fact, and it's um, part and parcel to addiction recovery. George, let me ask you, um, Marty raised the point that the reason that we need uh, felony possibilities with drug possession offenses is that we need an incentive for people to choose treatment uh, when they are charged with a crime. Uh, do you agree with him? I, I don't, uh, but I understand where Marty's coming from. I think that we have to make sure, though, that when we're treating this as a misdemeanor, that we do have a tool to ensure that people that need treatment are going to be uh, afforded the opportunity and are going to have treatment. I also agree with Tal that not necessarily everybody that uses drugs is an addict, and not necessarily everybody that uses drugs needs to have treatment. But having said that, the people that often we will come in contact with will be people that have a severe drug abuse problem. Uh, generally, they also have a, 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 a mental health issue problem. They're often housing problems, employment. You know, there are many other problems, uh, and that's the population that we deal with often. And I think that, you know, figuring a way to have an intervention so that services are available for those that need it the most, I think, is really important. I don't necessarily agree that a felony conviction is the, is the, the vehicle to, to do so, but I think that we have to make sure 
that as we lower the, the sanctions here, that we do have the tools and that we have the ability to, the, to distinguish between people that have uh, a drug addiction problem and people that are using drugs uh, recreationally and otherwise are a functional person. We're going to be taking audience questions uh, shortly, so if you have a question, just try to get the attention of someone in the aisles. Um, Ethan, let me um, ask you this. You know, in California, there are a number of offenses, uh, drug possession offenses, that are punished already as misdemeanors. I think uh, methamphetamine, PCP, I think Valium, certain steroids, and yet we treat as felonies the possession of cocaine and heroin as felonies. Um, did you see this kind of discrepancy in the other states that your organization has worked to? You know, Matt, Matt if I could, I think the perspective I could offer that would be more, more useful in that um, uh, is really putting what the U.S. is doing and California is doing in a more global perspective. Um, because what one sees uh, 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 around the world is a growing number of countries that are choosing to decriminalize the possession of all drugs. One sees the proposals now emerging from uh, Mexico did this a couple of years ago in a small way. The President of Colombia has proposed it, Argentina, Costa Rica, Ecuador, Guatemala, some of them with right-wing governments, very tough on crime, and they're suggesting that in Europe, Similarly, it's not generally the standard to be putting people behind bars for possession of any drug in small amounts for one's own personal use. And the, perhaps the paramount example of success in this regard is Portugal. I mean, Portugal 11 years ago decriminalized the possession of all drugs in personal use amounts. Drug selling is still illegal. You can still be arrested for that. They began doing evaluations a few years ago. Now, you do not go to jail for possession of any drug in a small amount. And you are not drug tested. Nobody gets thrown back in for dirty urines and all this sort of stuff. It's now been in place for 11 years. The research on that, and I recommend a piece by Alex Stevens and Caitlin Hughes in the British Journal of Criminology, and I can send it to you if those of you want to ask me later, by and large found that the results have been very, very positive, that essentially drug use did not go up, that issues like HIV and Hep C and overdose fatalities all went down, arrests went down, crime went down, people continued to seek treatment, that the rates of drug use in Portugal did not go up at the same rates as it did in comparable countries in Europe. That suggests powerful evidence that you can not just turn something from a felony to a misdemeanor, but eliminate the criminalization of drug possession small amounts without suffering negative consequences in terms of public health or public safety. Now, when Marty said before um, about, you know, they have, well, people have no incentive to go into drug treatment, I mean, you know, if I could, just it reminded me of the, the comedian. Remember he said, I have, you know, when, when all you have is humor, you know, you know, it's a hammer and everything looks like a, a nail. I think the perspective for prosecutors is when all you have is the criminal sanction, everything looks like a nail. And therefore, the only way to get people into treatment is to threaten them with a criminal sanction. Now, in fact, tens of millions of Americans have gone to AA and NA without the criminal sanction. And when you have evidence, I remember this, one of the first needle exchange programs in Tacoma, Washington, what they found was that the needle exchange program was the principal point of source of recommendations into drug treatment. Think about it. 
People come to a needle exchange program so that they can safely use their drugs without getting an infection or spreading it to other people. There's no coercion involved. It's the most supportive environment you can have for somebody who's an active drug user. Yet that became the principal point of reference and recommendation to conventional drug treatment programs. What that suggests is that when people need to get help, when people are trying to get better, what they most need is to be able to have the opportunity to find their own dignity, their own self-dignity, their own worth. Having a judge or a prosecutor with a hammer over your head saying, you better be clean or I'm throwing you to jail, you better give me clean urines or I'm sending you to jail, that may work for some people. There's no reason to make that the one-size-fits-all model. In fact, huge numbers of people will, will and do seek out treatment, whether it's methadone or 12-step or anything else, if that treatment is respectful, if it's quality, if it has evidence success. We do not need the criminal sanction in order to get people into drug treatment. I find it uh, uh, relatively interesting that uh, we have on the books uh, that was passed by the people of the California Initiative, Prop Proposition 36, uh, which provided uh, a means for individuals to get treatment and avoid the criminal sanction. We have uh, uh, practically every county around the state has both pre-plea or post-plea diversion programs for individuals who, who uh, are charged with, uh, with felony possession uh, can complete that program and uh, not have that conviction. And yet this overlays now uh, under, under Senator Leno's bill, this would create uh, a, a, a parallel system but only for, for misdemeanors. And I note the only sanction for an individual who refuses probation for a misdemeanor is to pay a $500 uh, uh, program, drug program fee. Or if it's a second offense, oh, he gets charged with 1500 bucks. But if he accepts probation, then the fee is cut down to 250 or $500 for a uh, second or subsequent offense. Now, uh, where are these individuals, majority of whom uh, uh, are involved in this trade, uh, are indigents, uh, where's, where's this money going to come from? Uh, there's already uh, uh, an escape provision for ability to pay. Uh, the judge has to consider whether or not these individuals have that ability to pay. So again, I get back to we've got these uh, uh, programs uh, that allow and escape from the criminal sanction when people don't take advantage of it. I, maybe, maybe I am looking at um, uh, the fact that uh, uh, with a hammer, everything out there is a nail, but uh, I just don't see uh, Senator Leno's uh, uh, legislation uh, fostering any uh, different. Now, if you're talking ultimately decriminalization, because I think that's where this is headed, uh, then that's a different story. Marty, let me just ask you, has your organization put together any information uh, that would counter claims that decriminalization in this manner has been successful in these other states that have moved in that direction? Uh, we, have not, we have not done any white papers on that, uh, on that issue. Wendy, can you respond to uh, Marty's uh, last argument? I mean, he's in effect saying that if you come into the criminal justice system with a drug possession charge as a felony, you're 
probably not going to end up with a felony conviction if you're willing to seek treatment, and, and very unlikely that you would go to state prison. Do you agree with that? Well, I think it depends upon what county you're in. Um, I think San Francisco is the only county in the state that currently has a Prop 36 court that is still actively working because the state has defunded all the Prop 36 courts and efforts throughout the states. And so um, I think this provides Senator Leno's bill really does the right thing. It tries to move in a direction to where it's not contingent upon how much money is available within one jurisdiction or not. It actually frees up $64 million of general fund uh, at the state level that could be reinvested into services. I know when you look at realignment, for example, here in San Francisco, a third of our plan, a third of our dollars for realignment has been invested in uh, substance abuse treatment, mental health treatment, and housing, but we've made that choice. I think if you compare us, though, to many other jurisdictions, we have a collaborative court continuum that is unmatched in other parts of the state. So I think to say that they would, it's not happening. And if you take a look at jurisdictions, other counties throughout the state, you will find heavy incarceration rates and not use. And in, in fact, the prosecutor's not using those programs. We're very fortunate in our district attorney. He is very visionary. And I just commend him for his um, stepping out there and taking this position, which I support also in terms of, you know, we have got to focus on treatment rather than say, well, there's this program or that program when in fact the state hasn't funded it. And so it's placed that burden on the local counties. Tal, can you, uh, can you respond to Marty's uh, point and Wendy's? I can just say based on my experience dealing with individuals who have drug problems, most of the time, um, I don't think that the, the, the threat of a quote-unquote felony conviction is necessarily going to prevent them from, from using. I think what would make more sense is to provide them with more services and to be more individualized in terms of treatment and how uh, we address specific individuals. I also would note that when you are uh, facing a misdemeanor charge, you're facing up to a year in county jail. Now, sometimes you don't do a year in county jail because of changes that we've made to good time credits. But there is a threat potentially of incarceration that's attached to a misdemeanor conviction. So I think that's threat enough. If you really are looking for hammers and nails, why not just have the threat of um, a misdemeanor period of incarceration? Uh, the other thing I would say is that the recent trend has actually been to implement shorter periods of flash incarceration so that you actually provide an immediate sanction to address a particular problem, um, which has had based on uh, the research I've seen, greater success in changing behaviors because it's more of a cognitive behavioral model. It's like a reward, punishment, immediate system. Whereas just putting people in state prison and warehousing them for extended periods of time, especially when we all know that, uh, unfortunately, going to prison doesn't mean that you don't have access to illegal narcotics. Um, that doesn't seem either to necessarily you know, be, a, be a solution. Marty, you want to respond uh, or? Well, uh, with. I promised to Marty that we, we <laughs> would be careful to give him equal time here. Oh, no, that's, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> I, I already feel uh, uh, the, the glow of uh, uh, San Francisco's progressive uh, approach to these things. <laughs> uh, 
And, and in defense to the other counties, I think that, that um, you know, that, that's the challenge that we always face with, with legislation should one size fit all. And I think that the whole purpose of uh, the realignment approach was to allow individual counties to experiment uh, with programs um, uh, in dealing with uh, uh, individuals who are charged with crimes, um, either providing treatment, uh, a little bit more treatment model, and, and a locally based model because those individuals are from those specific communities. And I think those communities need to have the flexibility to, to be able to develop those local solutions. Um, obviously, San Francisco is, is blessed with a uh, probation chief. Uh, she told me earlier that uh, misdemeanants, certain misdemeanants, uh, are supervised by probation. That's not the general rule throughout California. I think uh, Los Angeles, where I'm from, uh, there was no uh, supervision for misdemeanors by the probation department. Those individuals were on court summary probation, which meant uh, go home and sin no more, and if you do, you'll be back here uh, to, uh, to see us. And so um, I, I think that, uh, once again, I go back to the fact that under the current system, because we have so many of those individuals who were once incarcerated um, at, at the state level, being pushed down to the counties, there's no room at the end in terms of the county jails. So misdemeanants are not going to be sentenced to county jail. They're going to be sentenced out there in the community, community service, or whatever. And, and for those individuals who, who do need some measure of control and supervision to deal with their addiction problems, it's not going to happen at the misdemeanor level. Let me go to a couple of the questions from the audience. I've shared them with um, uh, our district attorney. George, two questions there, one related to whether or not drug possession should be treated differently for adults than from juveniles, and in a question about back on track, uh, whether or not that program would be positively or adversely affected by uh, Senator Leno's proposal. Right. Uh, yes. I, let me start with the, f the first question concerning juveniles. I think juveniles definitely need to be treated differently, and certainly here in San Francisco we do. Uh, we uh, very seldom, well, in fact, I know for a fact that we do not criminalize uh, simple possession of drugs. Uh, there's a lot of other vehicles that we use to deal with juveniles before it ever gets to, to a, a prosecution for possession of drugs. Uh, and I think there, there are some good reasons for that. I think that when, uh, when we're talking about juveniles, we, we should explore every possibility that we can uh, to decriminalize uh, juvenile behavior in order to provide them with an opportunity um, to correct their behavior and move on so they can get an education, they can get employment, uh, and they can become a productive uh, member of society. And, and generally, the juveniles, again, that we deal with are not any different uh, than the adults we deal with, right? Those are juveniles that often come from homes where supervision at the home is, is either uh, not there or is very lacking. Uh, there is really a, a significant lack of uh, role model support. 
so there are a lot of problems already that the juveniles that generally come to our attention already bring with themselves. Uh, the problem is there's still not enough funding. There's not enough vehicles to provide the services that are necessary. So that, that, is, a, that is a challenge for us. Uh, and, and unfortunately, often the drug use, drug abuse, and those other things do lead to, to more serious crimes when, you know, they in fact do uh, become involved in, in, in a different part of the process. The other question had to do with back on track. I, I don't see 1506 uh, impacting negatively on back on track. As a matter of fact, the conversations in our office are today around how do we expand the program. Uh, I think back on track has been a very successful program. Uh, we have used a very, very small population. And for those of you that are not, not familiar with back on track, it was a program started on the Camel Harris uh, where uh, first offense, uh, possession of drugs for sales, the individual agreed to go through a process of training uh, that included a partnership with Goodwill Industries and other partners. Uh, in, individuals were put through the program. They, they, they receive uh, training in a variety of areas. They were, you know, put on the track to, to get uh, gainful employment. And when they graduate from the, from the program, their criminal record is sponged. There's a deferred entry of judgment. Uh, we are now trying to uh, explored how do we take back on track and, and continue to to move the envelope so that we include other offenses and other people. We believe it's a very successful program and quite frankly it's a model that, that I hope to expand. We've got a uh, video message from Senator Leno we were going to play. Is that right? Is it ready to go? Here we go. Welcome everyone to the 2012 Justice Summit. I'm Mark Leno and I'm so wish that I could be with you today, but I'm attending to my legislative duties in Sacramento. I also want to thank you for your interest in criminal justice reform and all your energies and efforts on its behalf. We know that this is an issue that is of great importance to the state of California and to the nation. And of course, we have the opportunity to yet again lead the way in reform here in California. We're authoring a bill this year, SB 1506, which would redefine crime of simple possession of a drug from felony to misdemeanor. There are 13 other states and the federal government which already do this. And in those 13 other states, we have the data that shows that we get better results, better outcomes, meaning safer communities. And surprisingly, these states include not only the large eastern states of Pennsylvania and New York, but also states like Mississippi, South Carolina, West Virginia, Wyoming, Iowa, all of which use this misdemeanor charge rather than felony. And what we find in these 13 other states is that there are higher rates of drug treatment participation, lower rates of drug use, and even slightly lower rates of violent and property crime. So again, we can prove we can have safer communities. And then, of course, there are the unintended consequences of a felony conviction. Consequences that can really cause great damage to a young life for many decades out. The very three things that can keep someone successful in his or her recovery, access to housing, education, and employment, are put farther out of reach because of a felony conviction, especially in a down economy. Someone with a felony has great difficulty even accessing a job which just pays a minimum wage. So by putting these felony convictions on a whole population of young people, 
we really perpetuate a chronic underclass which benefits none of us. And then, of course, there's the inequity in the criminal justice system. Even though we can show that drug use rates are quite similar in all different ethnic communities, an African American has a 13, greater, 13 times greater likelihood of being convicted of the felony of simple possession. Then, of course, there's also the savings that we could experience. Our nonpartisan, independent legislative analyst office has determined that there would be $159 million annually of savings at the county level, plus another $65 million annually in savings at the state level. And our bill would direct a portion of that savings to drug treatment programs so that we can, like these 13 other states, have greater outcomes, safer communities. I, of course, have to thank the sponsors of our bill, and we have a number of them. The ACLU, which has been such a champion for so many years. Of course, the Drug Policy Alliance, as well as the NAACP. I also want to thank San Francisco's District Attorney, George Gascoigne, who was at our committee hearing with the Senate Public Safety Committee a couple weeks back. George was there to speak on behalf of a bill that we're working on together, but he proactively came to the tape for this bill, SB 1506, to say that he's been in law enforcement for 30 years and brings that 30-year experience to this consideration of our bill. And he said, this bill makes sense because drug treatment works. And this is in spite of the fact that we'll be battling the California Association of District Attorneys along with many other arms of public safety as we move forward. So the challenge is great. We've got the data, we've got the facts, and we know that this reform will provide great benefit to our communities, to our neighborhoods, and to all of California. Thank you for your support. Tal, I want to go back to the question that Marty posed earlier, which was, in effect, this idea that uh, in order to incentivize people making the decision to seek treatment, that this, the fear of a felony conviction or a possible state prison sentence could play a positive role. Um, you talk to a lot of people charged with crimes who are trying to make the decision of what decision to make. What, what is the primary motivation that you see coming from them? How do they decision make on, on dispositions related to drug possession as a felony? I think that um for a lot of people, it's, it, it does have to be a personal decision and they have to come to it themselves. I, I don't think they necessarily are thinking about whether or not they would be convicted of a felony or a, or a misdemeanor. I will also say that um, sometimes you'll meet someone in county jail and they're ready. They're ready to get treatment. They're ready to get help. And because of the lack of resources, they have to sit in county jail and wait for a bed to open up or wait for there to be an opportunity for them to access treatment. And one of the things that this bill would do, ideally, would be to divert some of those resources that go into enforcement and put them into um, treatment outlets for people. So perhaps there wouldn't be that weight that people have while they're incarcerated where they can you know, lose hope or kind of slip back into their old ways of thinking. But 
from my experience, the longer someone's incarcerated, kind of the less incentive they have. And the people who have been in and out of prison, I mean, it's almost like they've given up hope a long time ago. And so if we can change that, if we can instill hope in, in people, and, and if we can have access to treatment uh, in a shorter time frame so that there can really be treatment on demand, then I think you'll see different outcomes. But again, just warehousing people uh, for extended periods of time, based on my experience when I've met people, that doesn't seem to provide them with any more incentive to get treatment when they get out. They just come out institutionalized and, and worse off. Ethan, I wanted to ask you, in the other states that, have, uh, that you've seen ballot measures uh, uh, go before the voters, were there particular arguments that were more compelling than others? Did you find um, anything really caught uh, the public's uh, support or imagination? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, my organization drafted and put on the ballot Proposition 36 back in 2000. And that included at the time uh, doubling state funding for drug treatment by $120 million a year. We made the mistake of only putting it in there for five years, and eventually the funding was cut and saved taxpayers a huge amount of money. What we saw when we polled in other states around the country on Prop 36 and that sort of – because remember, Prop 36, in fact, was because it prohibited incarceration the first two times somebody was arrested for possession if they did not have a criminal record, it was, in fact, a fairly substantial decriminalization statute in its own right. What we found was that even in southern states, Florida, significant majorities, over 60 percent, believed that people – who had an addiction should not be sent to jail the first or second time, jail or prison the first or second time that they were picked up um, for drug possession. So you saw that as sort of a moral notion. You also, of course, see the cost savings argument. When people, I mean, I could critically say, look, most drug treatment does not work most of the time for most of the people who pursue it. That said, dollar for dollar, person for person, drug treatment is a dramatically better investment than incarceration, right? I mean, you think about it. It's, it's treatment, it takes, it's like quitting cigarettes, right? People need multiple times. You never know if you're an ex-smoker till the day you're on your deathbed. Oh, my God, I didn't smoke for the last 20 years, right? You know, smoke, cigarettes we know are more addictive than the other drugs. It takes time and this sort of stuff. But I think people responded to some extent on a moral basis that it's just not right to put people behind bars for that. And secondly, on the cost savings piece. The third one, I think, was the utilization of law enforcement resources. We see that both with marijuana and with other drugs. That by and large, the public says, let the cops focus on real crime, predatory crimes, violent crimes, not prioritize this simple one. I want to I give everyone uh, on the panel one last chance to make any closing remarks. Uh, Wendy, you want to lead off? I just think realignment was um, a good indication that the public sentiment has changed. The polls that are out there now, the public wants accountability, but sensible accountability, and I think 1506 gives us that. And I think, you know, the comment was made regarding, you know, each of the counties and giving some more autonomy. But in fact, what we found is um, that when you have realignment, say, for example, all 58 counties getting to decide what they want to do, well, if we just look at the incarceration rates across each of the counties, 
Fresno, like county population demographics to San Francisco in terms of raw numbers and that, but yet they incarcerate at four times the rate. So I think that that's why, you know, a, a law change that impacts on a statewide basis is more sensible than leaving it up to each county because then you'll end up with 58 different uh, styles and methods of criminal justice. Sal, do you want to? Well, I was just going to, you know, I'm the public defender, so it's my job to push the envelope. And um, I think it's one thing to talk about uh, reducing uh, possession charges from felonies to misdemeanors, but I'm not sure that that's going to change the, the color and the demographics of the population in county jail. Um, and there's another significant percentage of the population, uh, young people um, who are coming from, from uh segments of San Francisco where, that are economically depressed and sometimes don't have the same opportunities. And they're out there on the street sometimes selling small amounts of drugs to these drug possessors. And until we address that problem and until we expand programs like Back on Track exponentially so that really the first time that you're arrested for drug sales or if you're arrested for selling a crumb of a certain drug, um, you aren't labeled as a felon, labeled as a drug dealer, sent off to prison, and, and forgotten about. Until we address that bigger problem within the war of drugs, then our jails are still going to be filled with people of color and poor people. And the fact of the matter is, we can talk about the nitty-gritty and the details, but the war on drugs, it's not working, people. It's like you're not going to end the war on drugs one sweet and low or extra packet at a time. You know, we need to think of it holistically as a public health problem, not as a problem that we can law enforcement our way out of, and that needs to be not just possessors, but also the people who, because of economics, are selling, or the people who, to get their next hit, are selling, you know, a rock to an undercover police officer pretending to be an addict. All those people, they all need help, and a felony conviction and incarceration is not going to solve this problem for uh, society. Marty? Marty, you want to, or have you given, thrown I, in the I, towel? I think, I've, I think I've given my all for the cause here. <laughs> so, George? Uh, uh, I'll, I'll, leave it to, uh, I'll leave it to George to uh, put the capper on it. But, Thank you. But, by, by the way, Marty, what's, the, what's George's sanction for uh, opposing <laughs> the, uh, he's, a, he's one of your members, isn't he? <laughs> he, he, cert he certainly is, and he's a valued member of the association. As an elected official, he's entitled to his own opinion. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Marty. Yeah, actually, I, I have to say that, again, I, I want to thank once again uh, Marty for coming here. Uh, he knew that he was going to come into an audience and that he was going to be a panel that was going to be uh, presenting an opposing view. That is an important view, by the way. I, I want to repeat... Uh, it's important for us, and, you know, I, I am pretty much in the minority in the association. Uh, I think in concerning this particular item, I'm probably one uh, out of 57 that believes that this is a good solution. Uh, but I think it's important for me, and it's important for all of us to recognize that there, there are valid points of view out there that may not agree with us, and that if we really are serious about developing solutions that work for all of us, that we have to entertain uh, those uh, points of view and try to reach consensus because that is the only way that we will really uh, 
create workable and sustainable solutions. Otherwise, all we're doing is we're all spinning our wheels. Uh, my reason for being here is, as it concerns 1506 is because I truly have come to the conclusion, a conclusion that is not only based on years on the ground operationally, but also years working at developing a public policy, uh, working with uh, the Council of State Governments and, and justice reinvestment and lowering incarceration uh, around the country, uh, and working with other people in a variety of, uh, a variety of settings in order to lower incarceration in our country, is that I don't believe that incarceration has taken us where we need to be. And I believe that the war on drugs has been a failure. I believe that when we institutionalize people uh, over extended periods of times, what we do is we take generally uh, low-level offenders in the early stages, we harden them, we quite frankly, we send them to the university of crime, uh, and by the time that they get out of prison, they, they generally become a bigger social problem. So where I come from, whether it's a drug on war or, quite frankly, many other areas of our criminal justice system, is I'm really on the side of saying we need to reform our system, we need to reduce the number of people that we send uh, to jail or prison. We need to reserve that space for people that are truly dangerous to all of us and that have no way of fixing themselves. And there will always be some of those people, by the way. I think that we have to realize that, yes, there will be some people that will go to prison because the rest of us need to have some people in prison in order for us to be safe. But that is a very small minority, and there are many other solutions out there, uh, whether it's someone that has engaged in, in possession of drugs, somebody that has a drug addiction, or quite frankly, people engaged in some other low-level low level crimes, that if we move away from incarcerating these people in the early stages and deal with different forms of behavior modification, we are going to not only be a safer society, but we're going to be a more just society, and we're going to be able to spend more money in parks and schools and many other endeavors as opposed to our prison system. Ethan, give you the final word. Yeah. I thought the person on the panel who was going to most provoke me was Marty, but in fact it was Tal. I mean, when he said that, that his job as public defender is to uh, push the envelope, that's my job description, I mean, as head of Drug Policy Alliance. So I really wanted to, uh, to, to finish with this. I, I, I wanted to bring it back to basically what I think are, are three key ethical points. And it's, the first one is this. I don't think that there is any legitimate basis in science or medicine or any ethical code that I know of or the Bible for that matter for our criminal law distinguishing between those people who put alcohol and tobacco in their body and those people who put other substances in their body. That there is no legitimate basis for distinguishing between the recreational alcohol user and the recreational marijuana, cocaine, or heroin user. And there is no legitimate basis for distinguishing between the alcoholic on the one hand under our criminal law and between the drug addict on the other hand, the illicit heroin or cocaine addict. That's first. The second ethical point I would make and I hope most or all of you agree with this, is I don't believe that anybody should be punished simply for what we put into our own bodies absent harm to others. That nobody but nobody deserves to be punished for what we put in our own bodies absent harm to others. Get behind the wheel of a car and you're in the influence? Yes. Hurt somebody? Yes. And don't tell me your addiction was the excuse, et cetera, et cetera. But 
We each need to be regarded as sovereign over our own minds and bodies. That means that the criminal laws should not be treating anybody as a criminal for what we put in here. And thirdly, that when one is trying to pursue a particular public health or public safety objective, in this case reducing the harms of drugs or whatever it might be, and when you have powerful evidence that a non-coercive system can accomplish that public safety and health objective as well or better than a coercive system, when a Portugal-like approach can accomplish that objective as well or better for a lower cost and with all sorts of other savings than the American coercive system, then as a matter of good public policy and as a matter of, of ethics and morality, one is compelled to demand that the government rely on the non-coercive approach over the coercive approach. I think those three key moral points are fundamental to when we think through the future of drug policy in this state and in this country. Thank you. Let's, um, let's uh, thank all of our panelists. Thank you very much for participating. Okay, in closing, in closing the program, just have one minute. I just wanted to thank all of you for coming to the 2012 Justice Summer Summit. One thing that has distinguished our work and what we've done at these summits is action. And if you look at over the past nine years since we've been doing these summits, we have the evidence to prove that. Out of our first summit came the call to have a community-based collaboration that helped youth and families work together on a community-based level. Since then, we've developed the MAGIC programs, the Mobilization for Adolescent Growth in our communities, both in the Western Edition and Baby Hunters Point. Out of the second summit came a call for better coordination of reentry services, and from that sprung the Reentry Council, which is now the official policy body. And I can go on and talk about what we've achieved over the past nine years, but really what we're looking to achieve this year is to make strides going forward, particularly in the area of violence reduction and gangs. We've heard about the strategies today. We've seen the promise of law enforcement being able to work together with community-based organizations that are dedicated to violence reduction. So this is possible, but only if you all get involved. So for those of you that are here, and for those of you that are watching at home, get involved, pick up the phone. You can go to our website to keep up with developments, sfpublicdefender.org. We are planning to create initiatives around each of the uh, subject areas that we've talked about today around gangs, gang and violence reduction, uh, neuroscience and applying brain science to, uh, to the law, and finally uh, advocating uh, for drug reform. Again, this is a banner year for criminal justice. On the ballot, we have the three strikes initiative uh, that will limit the application of three strikes to only serious offenses. Uh, also, uh, the ballot measure, the state measure, which will eliminate uh, the death penalty. So with that, again, thank you uh, for all of you for coming, uh, for all the volunteers that made this possible. I want to thank the San Francisco Public Library for every year they provided us this wonderful venue uh, to do this event, and also SFGov TV for putting us on the tube. So again, we'll see you next year. Keep in touch. Thank you.